Spider-Man in September. And whoop, whoop, that's the sound of NFTs. Well, hello and welcome to Triangle Square, the PlayStation podcast. I'm your host, Brett Beck, and alongside me, as always, is one, the only, wearing a Guardians of the Galaxy shirt? Is that what's going on here? No, it's a Oh, is that Destiny? Zelda. Zelda. Oh, wait. I forgot that they're called Guardians in Breath of the Wild, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, sorry. It's a mid-game. I mean, uh, that's a... It's a great game. Chris Figs, I am joined (laughs) by here. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Brett? I'm doing all right. Hot takes on Zelda aside, they're just jokes, people. I promise. Bad takes on Zelda. I don't love Breath of the Wild, but I don't think it's a bad game. Uh, All that said... With a relatively light news week, a couple of weird surprises that popped up right before we went to record today, we'll talk about Spider-Man looking to be coming later this year, as we already knew, but now we have a month, thanks to one of the voice actors. Uh, Neil Druckmann talking a little bit more about what's going on with the continuation of The Last of Us series after its huge success. Sony hopping into the NFT ring, it would appear, uh, and more. But, as always... We hope you stick around if you're new, you like what you hear, consider liking, consider subscribing if you're on podcast services, consider giving us a review afterwards. But first and foremost, I want to remind everybody that we have timestamps these days and we do it for a reason. So please feel free to use the timestamps to find what you'd like to hear throughout the episode and avoid anything that you may not want to hear. Or if you're one of those people that just likes having us in your ear hole for some reason, we don't mind you listening to the whole thing. We want the show to be what you need it to be. But without further ado, we always start this show off in a time-honored tradition, and that's checking up on what Chris has been playing. So, Chris, what have you been playing this week? Um, So I've spent the vast majority of my week with one game, and that game being uh, Batman Arkham Asylum. If you've been in the trophy talk section of our discord you know what i've been playing this week so yeah i've been playing a lot of batman game is game is excellent i'm just about done (laughs) struggling with the uh, poison ivy boss fight on hard mode but other than that right there at the end (laughs) (laughs) well look you're you're not too far out so what's this next game i see on your list it's a it's a little game that was uh, moderately controversial at first due to the uh old one two (laughs) switch it gave everybody yeah the switcheroo um yeah no i played a (sighs) small amount of the uh, exo primal beta and got to admit i really liked it i thought it was really fun So now that you've had a little bit of hands-on time, I mean, do you think it's going to be a uh, you think it's going to be a hit for Capcom, or do you think this will be a rare miss these days? Oh, it's it's a hundred percent going to be a miss, but it was really fun. I, it's just very generic. Like I liked what it was doing, but I could not see a way to convince any of my friends to buy it and play it with me. So that on At its own price. is dead. Of, is, it makes it dead on arrival. I'm sure when it hits PS Plus in six months, we'll all play. But until then. I can't. I can't see it. Or six months from when it launches in July. But I yeah, have no, I got you. It. So if I mean, basically, is it just like you said? It's it's so basic and generic, and well, not basic, but it's so generic in particular that it doesn't have enough identity to really pull anyone in outside of just. Do you want to have dumb fun? 
Yeah, pretty much. And it is very, it is fun. I liked, it's kind of has this Overwatch style, but it's, it's like horde mode. But it's also, you're competing against another team who you don't see until the end. And then there, so basically it's, you start off, you pick your, your mech and you can change mechs on the fly. And at least in the beta, you had access to all of them. Uh, so okay. I played this tank mech with a giant uh, minigun. And I just stood on the point and emptied into the Velociraptors. And that was cool. That's like a dope sentence to say. But <laughs> like, I when I was playing it, I was like, I really like this. I could see myself having a lot of fun. I can't convince anyone to play it. Like, there was really awesome stuff. Like, you can get this uh, buff for your team that allows you to play as a dinosaur. And I was super into that. Like, I can play as a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like that. And I get to play with like Power Rangers mech looking things and do spin tricks and all this kind of stuff. But I I, I don't know. It feels weird because it. I feel like the game would be really cool if it was like, hey, do you like Gears Horde mode? Here it is with dinosaurs. <laughs> but instead oh, like it's if it like, leaned more into it. Yeah, if it, it was Horde. It because it's not a Horde mode. You clear out waves and you have to do that while pushing a payload and then you get the payload to the end and you go and kill the enemy team and then that's the whole thing at least so far i only played one mission because that was all that was available so i did training tried all the mechs did a mission um but the gameplay was fun there's some like really bad graphical stuff like there's this one intro thing they're showing you and it's a bunch of raptors all together moving moving upstairs and you can see them just kind of up down up down up down up down <laughs> like it's very much not like they're oh realistic stair climbing for the 87 raptors on screen that was not it was it was very much like janky almost someone was doing it by hand do you think it's the kind of jank that would be cleaned up by launch, or do you think it's the kind of jank you could expect for this type of game? It's like the kind of jank I hope is not cleaned up by launch. That shit was funny. Because <laughs> like, the game is beautiful. Like it, It's not the best-looking game I've ever seen. But I was like, oh, this is pretty. This is cool. And then you see the animation, and it's literally like Potter Puppet Pals a type of animation of them going up these stairs. But then you get close-ups on them, and they look good there. It was just that one part that made me laugh. But I, I like I said, the gameplay is fun. There's swords. There's snipers. You can have a big minigun like the guy I was talking about. There's a shield with a guy with a big shield who can punch really hard. Uh, it's cool. I think the biggest hurdle is going to be people getting people to play it other than when they're playing Destiny, when they're playing Apex, when they're playing Warzone, when they're playing RuneScape. You know, all of these things are going to take that time. And I don't know how to convince someone to be like, hey, want to play this live service game I don't know is very good, but I had a lot of fun with and we're going to laugh at. Like, that's not, you can't sell it that way. It's almost like a perfect Game Pass sales pitch. You get Game Pass <laughs> I was for about 15 to say, bucks. Do you think that this is also <clears throat> just a game that might be better suited to being free to play? Oh, absolutely. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends what they charge for, right? If they're going to be like, yeah, you get the starter mechs and then you can't, you have to buy the rest that might be weird because what I really liked was being mm. able to go like, I don't like this one. I can try the next one. And then you you, dr- you drop out of your suit and put on a new one. That was neat. Um, well, I that's just, kind of the balance of that type of game, though. Or when you're when you're trying to determine how you want to hit the market, that's the balance, right? Either lock content behind people paying but give them the game for free so they can try it or 
be like, well, if we want the people to just be able to experience all the content at their own free will and how they choose, then we have to have them pay for it all up front to make the development justified. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get the the back and forth of it. Uh, and I know a lot of games have been trying to hit that middle ground where I feel like it's trying to allow you to do a lot of stuff by paying for it, but coming in at a slightly lower price point if possible, and then also finding ways to charge you to get more content, um, which I think is a lot of the hangups for people with games of the service style games is that feeling that there might be something they're holding. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it's just a, It'll always exist, even if it's not true, even if they never held anything back from launch and then added everything else. You'll always have that feeling of like, are we sure they didn't just pull this so they had a few things to sell? Yeah, for sure. But it, it's a weird balance. It's just, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't, I just, nothing really stands out to me. Like, I don't know how to pitch it other than, hey, I really had fun with this. You should all pick it up. And then people looking at it and be like, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. but it's something that I think everyone, I I think if if you go in with the right mindset, you'll enjoy. Um, so I don't know that that was it for me. I don't know that I'll buy it, but it'll definitely be a sale game. I feel you. Okay. Well, I uh, I was you this week. You were me this week. Okay, hit me. Yeah, I just I played a bunch of games. Oh, look at you! I guess the difference is is that I finished every game I played. Outside of one, technically, uh, yeah. the other one I'd already finished. So my quick run through, uh, and I'm doing real well this week for the the plat competition. <laughs> so I've got Horizon, uh, Call of the Mountain. I got the platinum in that. I do think that game is a really strong showcase for PSVR two. There's a few very minor changes I would make, and I think that it swings just a little too high with its price tag of $60. Um, I think that this is a really easy recommendation at 40 and still something that I think would be right at home around 50 mm-hmm. But I think 60 just feels a little too far, but I get it. Nothing quite like it exists on PSVR 2 yet, so it gets to kind of exist in that flagship title space. Um, so yeah, if you have a little bit of extra disposable income 60 is not a bad price to get it at if you're interested in vr uh to finish up the rest of my vr playing i decided to take a break after this um i played before your eyes finally uh beat it wonderful experience very good Uh, my wife was watching me play it through the uh through the tv and was like, this shit is so sad. <laughs> I had headphones in, so I couldn't hear. But after I was done, she was like, why did you Why did you do that while I was sitting in here? <laughs> um, but it was funny because I heard her a few times whenever a part of the game would be going. And, you know, the main mechanic is, is that at certain points, you can blink all you want to. But once you see this metronome come up on screen and it starts ticking, the next time you blink... It moves forward. And there's a few times where I was trying my hardest to, to not, not blink. blink. And you'd fuck up and it was just, you'd blink. And she laughed because she'd hear me over there like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, I think uh, eye tracking expertly used there. There's also a few parts of the game where the game wants you to close your eyes and keep them closed and it recognizes that and uses it to like focus in on something when you're wanting to overhear something that's being said. Um, Also, 
you can play the entire game, no controller. Everything is done with your eyes. So like uh, if you're reading a book, you know, then you're going to look at the right page, like the right side of the right page. And then once you look within this circle, as you start to look left, it'll drag a line over to this circle that's on the far left of the book and it'll just turn the page for you. That's really cool. interesting choice of technology use. Um, unfortunately, I played the game, beat it, and it doesn't even show up on my trophies list at all because the game is in- incredibly bugged in the trophy department. I have 0%. The game doesn't even register that I've ever played it. Wow. Um, so I would be interested to go back and actually see some of the other routes. But unfortunately, I'll have to wait until they hopefully fix it, which I'm a little iffy on whether they'll do or not, because apparently the Steam version's achievements are also bugged and have been since launch like two years ago. But the That's developers so say they're working and to expect a patch. Apparently, one trophy is legitimately impossible to get currently, while the rest of them are possible if you just try and force some different things to happen. It's very weird. Some of them require multiple times of you doing the same thing, and one of them just won't happen at all. Um, moving on from VR, that was my last VR title for the week. I thought I'd try and fill in some games that have been on the list I created right towards the turn of the year of games I've been wanting to play that I decided to let the platinum competition be like my extra motivation to do so. So, of course, nice. some of those were like um, What Remains of Edith Finch. So this time, in a similar vein as Edith Finch, I did Tacoma, uh, a game that, thankfully, Chris already had. Uh, I didn't realize that, but I thought, you know, let me go see if Chris had it, and I saw that you had it, and I assume that means you have the platinum. I do have um, the platinum. So that was a good four hours of, you know, going through. And it's a very interesting game because I feel like it kind of exists. Chris, I don't know if you've ever played it. There was a game, um, it's a little bit longer than this, but it was called Adrift and the eye was a one and you're like in a space station. I've seen it a bunch, but I've never actually given it the time. So Tacoma felt, and I own it. So if you ever are curious about it, you can go get it. It's like a, this game feels like a mix between Adrift and, where you're up in the space station and kind of looking at what's going on, but being able to see all these different AR data points and be able to kind of recreate the story with people who are no longer around, but you see them interacting in this world, but it's all the past gave me big everyone or everybody's gone to the rapture vibes. Um, So I thought it was really good and I actually liked the story it was telling and uh, quite timely in a time where people are being both excited and terrified about AI's continual advancement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I really like that game. So I recommend it from what I understand now that I've went to sync my points on um, true trophies for the competition. Apparently the plat can be had in like an hour. Yeah, I got it in like an hour and a half. Okay, so it just depends on how you want to play it. Uh, the next game up that I just got the Platinum on today, I started playing it right after I beat Tacoma last night, and it has sucked up so much of my time since then. A short hike. I think I Platinumed it in like five hours, maybe yeah. six. Um, super fun. It's just like a classic game. I don't even know how to describe it. It's <laughs> Everything's about having dumb fun, and everything is about rewarding you for just experiencing 
exploring and having dumb fun. Yeah. Like there's a thing where you go and meet this kid and he has a game called beach stick ball and you hit a beach ball with a stick. <laughs> it's volleyball. Yeah. Uh, and you end up getting a reward. If you go far enough with that, you can catch fish. Uh, the whole point of the game is to climb this highest peak in this area that you're at um, because you're trying to get a phone call and it's the only place that has reception. Uh, and everything within that framing is just so well done. I don't want to say too much because it's a game that I absolutely recommend. And I didn't realize it was as cheap as it was, $8. So I bought it immediately and I'm so glad that I did. Very fun plat. It's the ideal trophy list. I don't know how else to, to say it. It's, <laughs> it's just have fun with the game, explore, and you're, you'll most likely get 90% of the trophies that way. And then I did use a guide to figure out what the fish I was missing because you have to catch every fish in the game and turn it in. Um, okay. And I could not find like two of them. Great game, though. Uh, I played a little bit of Far Cry 5's multiplayer yesterday uh, before I got back on Tacoma um, with one of our patrons and listeners, um, Baylor Robertson. <clears throat> and... Uh, apparently, I'm going to go back and, and help him a little bit more. There was one, one trophy he didn't think to get. Uh, and it brought me back to fun memories of doing the, the Platinum Grind with, I think it was me, Kiki, Vince, Sarah, and Liam. Maybe one other person, maybe Josh. But we were all just boosting that and having fun and running into like flying in planes and shooting each other down and crashing the planes into barns. And it was a good time. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so we were having a good time with it yesterday. Finally got that knocked out, but he got me to think one of the games I'm so close to platinum on. Cause he was asking what he felt like my hardest skill based platinum was. And he was saying that his is probably sack boy. And that is 100% a great answer because the only reason I quit going for sack boys platinum is that the knitted night trials Mm-hmm. are very difficult and there's the the final one the rest of them are all easy but the final one uh to get gold on it you've got to complete it in 10 minutes and it's just all the other did a night trials strung together in an endless oh. thing where you've got to go through all of it at once and it is rough yeah i feel that in my so i haven't even been able to finish it that's the problem and i think it's because i'm so worried about making sure that i make the time that i'm like trying to like hyper cut corners and stuff and i'm pretty sure if i just slow down yeah you'd have because i got i got about three quarters of the way through it earlier right before the podcast because i'm gonna download I, already, I still have it installed so i thought i'm gonna hop on and try it. i haven't played this game in months probably over a year but i'm gonna do it <laughs> i got just as far as i have in the past and i respect up. that so Oof. my hope is that some time away from it will make it easier for me to be like all right chill out calm down yeah. Uh, all right, Brett, let me ask you a question. Put a gun to your head here because we'll go back to a conversation from last week. Um, do you think Before Your Eyes is a Game of the Year candidate? Ooh. Uh, I think it will get a lot of nods from people who are just now getting to experience it. Uh-huh. But I think the fact that it already came out and had a group of people who loved it on Steam and PC uh, separate of VR since it you know, it didn't use VR until now. Um, I don't think it's going to be that. I don't. I don't think it's going to get that kind of thought process. I think people are going to play it, have a great time with it, talk about it, and talk highly of it. And I think it'll be mostly pushed off for games that are actually new this year. But I do think it's a fantastic game. It just it's it's going back to uh, the conversation that we had on Discord, right, where we were mm-hmm. talking about the jumping taco games and what separates a jumping taco game from My Name Is Mayo from 
uh, Telltale game from Spider-Man and all these different ideas of what makes a trophy valuable. We'll just go back and say, like, what makes playing a game valuable? And that changes so much per person that before your eyes is not game. I don't know how to describe it. It is gameplay, but it's not a game. It's like an experience that you have agency in in an interactive capacity. Okay. All right. I don't think everyone likes that, you know? Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering because we had said, like, or you had said last week, like, before your eyes was something you were looking at as a potential candidate for maybe not game of the year because, like you said, it had come out, but a game of the mm-hmm. year quality game on the PSVR, too. Uh, I think so, as long as it's your type of game. I think if you like that type of game, which I think is very much in line with like a Tacoma-style game or a What sure. Remains of Edith Finch, or if you like that type of game where it's you moving through and, and, and you know just an experience that you do have agency in, but it's not about the action or all that stuff, or being tactical, it's not strategy-based. It's just peering into a moment of time. And if you like that type of game, then yeah, I think it's one of, uh, it's definitely up there, one of the best. And I cannot understate how much the blinking mechanic does tie you into feeling like you're missing, like you're missing out on something that you wanted to do. And it was weird because it took a while at first. I think I was putting a little too much pressure on that as an idea. But then later, as I started having those moments, it was like a genuine, like I was mad that I'd blink because I was like, <laughs> I really wanted to see that. Um, and I think that that also, Oddly enough, adds a strange replayability to the game because there's that feeling of next time, maybe I can hold out just a little longer. I can see that logic. I can, I can and see. And there it. are, there are choices, right? The game actually has one of the trophies. If it would work, I think is to live both sides of one of your decision, like of a decision. So you'll have a couple of moments in the game where you can make decisions and then follow out what happens with that thought process. Um, so it's interesting. I, I really do think it's a good form of replayability without being as long in the tooth as like see every ending of Heavy Rain or see every ending of Detroit become human, you know? Yeah, I can I can see that. There's a part of me that thinks like you, you can speak to this to some degree because you've played games that have like morality systems. Part mm-hmm. of me wishes games that had morality systems didn't force trophies around them. Because it kind of goes against this idea of playing and having a version of the story that's true to you, like tr- the, your experience. Because if you're going for trophies, the game is trying to push you into seeing everything. And mm-hmm. as much fun as it was to just be able to play through Detroit, having trophies be like, see this outcome, see this outcome, see this outcome. I think that it, I really wish it would take the. Um, I don't know. Did you? Yeah, you played it with me because we we spent. Did we even finish it? Hold on. <laughs> a way out. Did we yeah, even we, finish I, it? We did. I got the platinum. Okay, I thought so. That, but I just remember that we played baseball for like two hours one night. We did. That was awesome. That was very <laughs> fun. Um, so point being, uh, I like that that. I, I consider that a similar enough kind of game, even though it does evolve into a little bit more gameplay. Um, but I like that its entire trophy list is like, you don't have to replay the game. If you just play the game and you just do weird stuff and pay attention to how you can interact with the game, that's how you get your trophy. That's how you get your platinum. I would kind of prefer that for specifically a game like Detroit or Before Your Eyes. But I get the idea of it's 
a quick way of easy replayability. Okay, cool. Yeah. I've got a question for you, good sir. Do you? Hit me with it. Yeah, it's from one of our listeners. <laughs> no Fate, one of our patrons, writes in and says, A while back, I'm sure it was mentioned that Sony and Microsoft were collaborating together to help improve the future of VR, right? If I've remembered that right, do you think this is still the case with everything else going on with them at the moment? Uh, well, I'll tell you first thing, and then I want to hear what Chris has to say. It was not VR, it's cloud it game. cloud. Azure. It was cloud gaming. It was Azure, and that PS Now is switching to Azure servers, uh, and they were working together to help cloud adoption go further. So, with that in mind, the spirit of the question remains the same, Chris. Do you think the current battle between Sony and Microsoft over the Activision Blizzard thing is having any kind of impact on their less directly game-facing side. Well, let me start first by correcting the correction because they canceled the contract, so they don't work together anymore. Oh, they Um, did cancel that. Yeah, they moved on to somebody different. But I miss that. That's interesting. I would have to imagine that business is business, and um, if if both companies could make money off of whatever they're working on together, they would continue doing it. But like I said, unless, unless I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. The Sony got out of that Microsoft uh, contract and is working with another company. Hmm. Well, it looks like it was Sony and Microsoft more so than PlayStation and Microsoft, yeah. which makes sense. And it says PlayStation team or blindsided by it so i can't find right now and maybe i'm not finding the right way to type it to where it was that they got out of it um but that would be interesting if so but looking back and still looking at the spirit of the question um i i agree i think microsoft and sony are both so multifaceted companies they have so much interest in places that aren't specifically gaming um that to some degree I don't think they're going to allow this particular thing of two sub-brands, even though PlayStation is a very, very large, most important piece of Sony in many ways. Uh, And Microsoft, Xbox is not quite the same with Microsoft. It seems like they're working for that. But Microsoft is such a big entity, much bigger than Sony, that it's easier for PlayStation to be Sony's top dog, much harder for Xbox to be Microsoft's top dog. All that to be said, I don't think that they would allow this to do that uh, because at the end of the day, Sony is still another partner who pays and allows Microsoft the bukus and bukus of money that they use to make these type of big acquisition moves, (laughs) both in the Xbox sphere and outside of the Xbox sphere when uh, Microsoft bought, you know, or they opened up their little streaming adventure for a little bit. Uh, They bought out plenty of different things. They tried Zune. So, all that said, no, I don't think this is impacting it. But it would be interesting to actually see that be a result. Like, as a result of this, we want to just stop doing anything nice for you at all, Sony. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I heard that. I'm not seeing it either. Maybe I'll continue looking a little bit later. But um, I, like, I, like I said, my answer remains the same. Uh, biz- money talks. <laughs> money does talk. And speaking of talking... I think it's time that we let the community talk. That was a good segue. 
That nice yeah, was a good segue. I'm proud that of myself. Was, that was uh, <laughs> <laughs> the community's take question this week was, of course, a reframing of the question that Jehudi asked us, one of our patrons, last week. And it, he asked, do you think game series would last longer when developers considered doing it the Final Fantasy way? Separate stories, but keeping things for fans of the series, good for developers to explore new venues slash genre for games, or would you consider sticking to a single storytelling method as well as gameplay and genre, a la GLW, which I keep assuming he means God of War, but he actually might mean Gears of War, because even with God of War's big reboot, it's still, in many ways, linear. Uh, it's it's like a linear hack and slash to a degree. Uh, Halo, etc., so we have a new voice rising up in here. I know that she's been listening to the podcast for a little while. Um, found us through uh, Joe and I going on each other's podcasts. Um, so Katie, or KT120, <laughs> says, <laughs> I think personally, a character's journey that we follow through a series of games, for example, Mass Effect, God of War, etc., I personally feel that little bit more invested in. Not that I'm not invested in games that take the Final Fantasy approach, but I find myself really interested to see how a character has developed over the course of, say, three games, like Commander Shepard with Mass Effect. I will say... A series that's done a nice in-between is Dragon Age. You follow a different character in each game, but characters from past games do filter into and impact the story. Chris, you are quite the Mass Effect and Bioware fan, though I don't think that you're necessarily a big Dragon Age fan. What are your thoughts on this as someone who I know loved that? We kind of talked a little bit on it last week with how Mass Effect might be able to kind of even do it and how they kind of attempted it with Andromeda uh, before it kind of flung back in their face as not quite what everyone wanted. So what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I do I do like the way Mass Effect was done. I think, and I think when we talked about it last week, I said this too, it's just I don't see it being worth, or not necessarily being worth it, but it just seems so hard to do that people won't do it. I think we'll just stick with sequels and anthologies i do my perfect world would be batman arkham asylum having some choices like oh do you do this to ivy or do you let her go and then arkham city being affected by that and then those compounding into night but even me saying it it sounds so difficult that i really do think mass effect was our one and only time where we're really going to get that yeah, and it really depends on how you frame it, right? Because I think taking the infamous approach and trying to mm-hmm. apply it to Batman doesn't work because Batman as a character is not evil. You know Batman. Right. So you can definitely allow Batman to make decisions kind of like we saw in the Telltale series for mm-hmm. Batman where those are impacted. You know, They impact the story in different ways. But you can't just take a morality system like infamous is and say, here's the good Batman story and here's the bad Batman story. Yeah. Because no at way. some point people were like, "There's Batman wouldn't go around le- like legit murking people. He wouldn't, yeah. he wouldn't punching be- reporters in the face." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I kind of get that, but it, I like games that let you make decisions and seeing them go. But somebody actually gets to it here in a little bit. But I'll go to the next one first. Uh, one of our patrons, uh, Rude Days ninety three, and remember, if you go to patreon.com slash nartech uh, and give as little as a dollar per month, we do give preferred reading to questions and answers in the community's take section for our patrons just as a way to say thank you. Doesn't mean every patron will always get their things read, but we try to get as many of them in that are differing and offering 
different opinions. And then we also like to elevate new voices like we did with Katie. So Katie, thank you for writing in. We appreciate it. But Rude Day says, I think as long as the previous main cast of characters have a satisfying conclusion to their story, it will be easier to move on to a new cast of characters. It would definitely be weird, but using Geralt as an example, I was happy with how his story ends in Witcher 3 and all the story threads concluding there. So following Ciri's story or another Witcher story wouldn't bother me too much. Now, that new cast needs to be equal or better than the previous. I look at Gears of War and going from Marcus Phoenix to JD wasn't great, but I think they fixed that by going to Kate now, uh, which is the move that they made in Gears 5. Um, As someone who did not play Gears 5, uh, I did play some of Gears 4, and I agree that as not a huge Gears fan, but someone who did enjoy them, JD wasn't as strong. <sighs> but at there's a thing where I guess it's natural human want to compare a group of people, e- even if it's a new anthology, right? Like if what's Mass Effect Andromeda, immediately everybody wants to compare the new protagonist for Andromeda and all the support characters to what they saw from all the people in Mass Effect first trilogy. And while I understand the want to do it, it also feels like you're setting the game up to fail because you're, you're wanting these cast of characters to already on the first time that you see them be as good as this relationship that you built with characters across three games. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, I do know what you mean for the most part. It is interesting to see the, the cast grow. It's one of the best parts of all of them. Well, I mean, the best part of Mass Effect is seeing, you know, Mass Effect 2, for example, seeing Miranda go from bitchy, annoying Miranda at the beginning of the game to being bitchy, annoying Miranda at the end of the game, but liking Shepard. You know what I mean? So, (laughs) (laughs) So stuff like that, like the growth in characters or even... Caden or Ashley in Mass Effect 1 all the way to 3 and seeing the changes in those characters I think is great. It's awesome. Yeah, and and I agree, but wouldn't you say that looking back at Miranda and saying, well, I've had three games worth of falling in love with her and liking that character and then trying to put that same amount of expectation on a character you just meet in a new game and you spend a few hours and you're like, ah, it's, it's not it's not what I felt with Miranda. But yeah, but you had three games to give Miranda yeah. that feeling and you don't have that here and that's that's just the nature of what it is, but it's a little unfair to the games. And that's why, as much as I wish I could, I really wish that you could just go back in time, remove Mass Effect's branding from Andromeda, and just call it Andromeda, and let Andromeda be this new series. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it had been given the same scrutiny. Probably and not. as someone who did not beat the game, I, I don't actually know the quality. I played a little bit of it. I played like five or six hours. I think the problem with what you're saying is that Mass Effect 2 already, and at least, again, this is all subjective. This is my personal opinion. I think what you're saying is disproved in Mass Effect 2 because Thane is introduced in Mass Effect 2, is far and away the best character in Mass Effect 2, and then he's not in 3, really. Like, he's there. Yeah, fair point. So it's it's just about writing and character. You have more of a connection with Ashley, Caden, Liara, Rex... 
And because of that, that's where mm-hmm. I was, because of that, you go into that with a comfort zone of characters that you know and like around you already. And it puts you in a better mood to be receptive to a new character coming into that cast. And yeah, being like, but- hmm, what's his play with this? Whereas when you have a whole new cast, it's a much more difficult challenge. And clearly it can work because people came into Witcher 3 as it being their first game ever and fell in love with Geralt and, and Siri and, uh, you know, everyone, Yin. Mm-hmm. So I get it, Tris. But at the same time, yeah. But, the point being is, or Dandelion too, I guess. But well, yeah. well, hold, everything well, being that, doing that is it, not that it's impossible. It's just, I feel like comparison, comparing right Mass Effects one, two, three to Andromeda. The thing about Witcher is people didn't go in having a preconceived. Uh, people who started at Witcher three didn't go in having a preconceived notion of what a Witcher character set should be like. You know what I mean? Yeah, but. Again, I think Mass Effect disproves your point because the cast of characters in all of the games is different. Fair. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. There's always there's always touchstone characters that you will see and exist, and then there's new characters that come in and impact the story. So. I guess if you're talking about... I guess I'm, I'm taking your question because we're focusing on Mass Effect as the people in your party, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Mass Effect to me indicates that it's just writing and had Andromeda been written better, maybe those characters take over. I think all things, I think all of it's true. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think because it was getting compared, it was being more scrutinized, but just because it was getting scrutinized doesn't mean that it was actually good to begin with. It's just, it's getting even heavier scrutinized than it may have been had it not had that. But you know what? I can't, you know, the, the weird thing is, I think Kevin Bacon bit's next answer, I think, is really kind of where I, I like this. So he goes, I think going the Final Fantasy route could work better to make a series last longer. You could also have spinoffs or sequels within the series like Final Fantasy did with 10 and 13. And that's kind of where I'm, I'm going. You can... The great thing about anthologies and letting things exist within a world but being not afraid to kind of move around is if you find a set of characters that you really like and you don't get that story closure that you want, or if you find it to be a massive, you know, because we're talking business reasons here, tend to exist for a reason. And I don't think it's because the story was unfinished. <laughs> if you've played Final Fantasy X and finished it, that story was finished. But it was a massive success and people fell in love with those characters. So it brought people back to be like, can we do something else with these characters and extend this world? Um, Whereas 13 was kind of always planned to be multiple games. They always wanted the lightning saga to kind of be a longer, more thought out experience where you can see a character grow, but then they can eventually move on and say, yeah, well now we're making 15 and we're going to have Noctis, this new set of characters. And now we're making 16 and you're going to have, um, you know, the new guy that's, I, I, I get the idea and I think it's a good way to have your cake and eat it too. But I still think not necessarily every series can pull that off. Would you agree? Oh, hundred percent, absolutely. <laughs> I think honestly, I th- I think the best example for what I want is actually in books, where okay, the Dark Tower and Stephen King's writing in general is kind of the perfect anthology, mm. where all of his books are separate and all of them are connected. <laughs> and I think that kind of very weird. They're connected if you want to see and find the connections. Yes, and if you don't, then they exist perfectly on their own right it's like if you read all of his books and to be fair some of them are not quote-unquote dark tower books but 
the vast majority of his books are all set in this way where all the characters are recognizable or, oh shit, that's Randall Flagg. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you can get all that stuff from his writing, which I really like and appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, well, TT Dog 666 another one of our patrons, says, Depends on the game. Elder Scrolls and Fallout already do this, and it could work for Cyberpunk 2077, but some series like Gears of War, where you follow the same group of characters throughout, it wouldn't feel right to me. And I think that gets at the heart of it, is that Final Fantasy, I think, has enjoyed this, uh, f- basically, flexibility and success in this model because the game out of the gate, the first time there was a sequel, they already were skewing. You weren't following the same characters. You were doing something different. You were playing something different. And then they just kept doing that. And I think it set up that expectation. And the thing is, is that Gears of War could work in this series, in this setup, right? As long as Gears of War from day one would have been planned to be like, all right, Gears of War 1 is this. This is what we're doing. Gears of War 2 is us going and looking at a new group of soldiers and their thing. But that only works if if that's what you set the expectation for. I think what happens with Gears of War and God of War and all these different series is that you get invested in the characters and the playstyle, and you want to see the playstyle continue to improve, and you want to see the characters continue to interact in ways that are interesting and intriguing and pull you forward and excite you. Uh, in a different way because like as excited as i am for final fantasy 16 it's a different kind of excitement than i was for like god of war 3 where it's like the stakes for kratos are crazy high and the last we saw he's climbing up mount olympus on the back of (laughs) titans like what the fuck is gonna happen that's a very different type of excitement than i have no clue what's going on with 16 but it looks really cool and all the story beats (laughs) that i've seen look interesting but i don't know these characters or how they interact and that mystery is exciting in a different way than the mystery of how the hell is kratos gonna try and dethrone olympus basically Mm mm-hmm so I mean, that answer was pretty obvious. Uh, kill them. <laughs> and all of them. Hard question. How is Kratos going to do anything? It's going to kill it. <laughs> kill them all. Yeah. Okay. One last answer from my longtime friend and patron, uh, Nomad of the Fence, a.k.a. Donovan. He says, I think the series that could already have And in many ways, I think that goes back to what I just said about TT Dogs, where the series that could are the ones that went into it early enough for it to be okay. And they just went about it. It is interesting that Square seems to be a very strong place for that, right? Because like the Dragon Quest series is a continual... Every Dragon Quest is different characters. Final Fantasy, different characters every time they go around. And then they kind of do these sub-setup games where they kind of do that same thing. We're going to... Well, new people. New people. Tales is mm-hmm. like that. I, I guess what I mean is that JRPGs in particular, uh, as we were just talking about that terminology, but RPGs from Japan, that seems to be more common, whereas Western RPGs seem to be far more driven toward the idea of sequelizing things. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very Western thing anyway. You know, I don't know how many... Uh, well, it's like I haven't seen the RRR cinematic universe yet, so <laughs> fair point. But <laughs> Studio Ghibli always comes to mind where easily any 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 Western fan of any of the Studio Ghibli movies would probably would almost in a heartbeat be like, I would absolutely love a Howl's Moving Castle too. 
I would take a house moving castle too. Exactly. Yeah. And you go like I take a Kiki's delivery service too. I take a you know, I, I get the idea. Grave of the Fireflies too. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say it. <laughs> but point being I think that our culture has been slowly like skewed to that mindset and, and liking that, and I'm guilty of it too. I, I'm over here. I need the order 1886 to have a sequel follow up because they set it up, but that's also because they set it up, right? That goes, yeah, Chris, you glazed, you glared in my eyes. Um, but listen, my point being is that Western media tends to set up sequels at the end of their games because it's always going into it as, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make more of this. Like mm-hmm. we're gonna we're we go into it assuming we're gonna make more so that we can make more. Are Whereas you- I feel like. And it and it depends on who it is, but I feel like a lot of Japanese creative uh, creative people kind of have that idea that I actually really enjoy, where it's the scarcity of it. Mm-hmm. It adds to the novelty. Like it's part of the beauty of the stories is that this is the only time you're going to see these people, and then that'll be a closed chapter, and you'll move on. And the next story that we do is going to be something new and different. And it's not going to be those people, and you appreciate the experience you had with those games and with those characters because we never allow you a chance to get sick of those characters or that world because we're always moving into a new direction and eventually the death of franchises is that people eventually go i don't care what master chief's doing i don't give a fuck what's happening in the halo rings (laughs) you know like that that day will come it's just a matter of when you say that after 15 seasons of supernatural but <laughs> hey, what's that old? You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. What, what happened? What happened with Game of Thrones? Oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> what happened with Walking Dead? Well, Walking Dead has always sucked. Walking Dead is a bad show. You're bad for liking it. Oh, look, there's something over there. Let's go over there. Oh, no, there's zombies in the middle. Let's spend 18 of our 23 episodes clearing out these zombies. Well, if you guys want to be part of our community's take or just reach out and talk with our lovely community or ourselves, you can always head over to Twitter and find us at TriangleSQRD. You can look in the description and we have uh, a link to our Discord where you can hop in just like Katie did recently and chat with us as well as some of the other listeners about what we're talking about in the podcast, what we're doing in our day-to-day gaming lives, checking up on what we're doing in our trophy competition, etc., etc. Go down in the description whether you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening on podcast services, click into the Discord. If you're more of a Facebook person, head over to facebook.com and find our group, Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. But without further ado, we'd like to remind you that if you're listening and you like what you're hearing, if you're on a podcast service that allows you to review or rate us, please do so. It lets people know whether or not we're worth their time, and that's very helpful for us, just like all of our patrons who find a way to help fund all this so that we can focus on just getting together, having a good time, and hopefully making good talk- content for you guys. Uh, but with that said, Chris. Brett. It's ready for the news, man. It's time for it. Daddy's ready for the news. Are you ready for the news? Because coming off the heels of the finale of HBO's interpretation of The Last of Us, Bella Ramsey has hinted at when we'll be getting the next season, which is expected to cover the second game, but in a, quote, radically different way. During an interview on ITV, she was asked about the second season, to which she responded, quote, 
it will be a while. I think we'll probably shoot at the end of this year, beginning of next. And then it's a long, it's like a year filming. So that will probably be the end of 2024, early 2025, end quote. Neil Druckmann has also hinted at season two on Twitter. He tweeted out an image of a very muscular arm holding a hammer, uh, teasing the arrival of Abby in season two. And just for anyone that knows, that was uh, one of the last of its day posters, actually. He just pulled that back in, I guess, (laughs) referencing that. Um, Wow. That was before everyone knew who Abby was or who the arm was. That was when it was still, (laughs) who's this mystery buff woman? That everyone was like, it's Ellie's mom. <laughs> because for some reason, they're showing 13 you know, years in the past. Yeah. 20 years in the past. They could have. It would have been interesting to see them try to approach that. But mm-hmm. can you imagine if the, the long awaited The Last of Us 3 is just go, all long series eventually sim. evolve? <laughs> they eventually devolve into time travel. So The Last of Us 3 is she has to go back in time to save. <laughs> the last of us to stop this from happening is a multiverse game she does it with abby i still i mean my pitch for part three is abby and ellie so that's what i want out of part three is them them together we'll see yeah, we will. Whatever Lev ends up in all that i i hope we get to check in on them because here we are again being the western consumers that we are can't wait for the next game in the series with the same characters when ironically what i wanted from the last of us before too was for them to just leave one's ambiguous ass ending yeah and then just show me new characters and let me fester on the fact that i don't know what actually happens between these two characters that i fell mm-hmm. in love with and i'll never know and i just have to live with that but now i know now i know what happened and i'm not saying that makes two a bad game i love two, but i actually do think there's a part of me that would have liked one to just exist in perpetuity as just that and then you move along but okay unfortunately that's not what happens <laughs> That's not how life works. No. It would have been nice, though. The world of The Last of Us. It was right there. Last of Us MMO. <laughs> the world of The Last of Us. It's right there. You can be a clicker, and you get to choose your class. <laughs> do you Okay. Do you think, looking at what Sony's doing with Gorilla, do you think we have a bigger chance of a Last of Us MMO or a Last of Us 4v1 PvE or multiplayer game? Uh, I actually was about to say before you asked this question that I actually hope one of the game modes of this last of us Two multiplayer or this, you know, whatever the new factions includes a a mode that is like dead space twos mode where one person is the Isaac of the situation and everyone else is an infected and there's different classes and it's all about trying to survive or kill the person before time's up. I personally like those types of game matches Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. I liked Evolve. I liked Dead by Daylight. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Interesting that you liked it. Evolve, the game that almost killed Turtle Rock. Realistically, <laughs> it's a good game. I think Evolve was just too early, and it was sixty dollars. That that right now would come out as a free to play game and probably be pretty big. It wouldn't surprise me. That game was fun. <laughs> well. Uh, it definitely ended up setting the tone for a long run of. What do they they call that asymmetric multiplayer yeah. where it's like one v something? But uh, you know that word has got so many meanings because you think about like whenever 
No Man's Sky first came out, and he was like, yeah, there's multiplayer, but it's asymmetric multiplayer. You don't <laughs> really play with other people. Yeah. You just see that they existed. Did I ever tell my 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 No Man's Sky story on this show about the multiplayer? Oh, I don't think so. Oh. Let's hear it. So when the first the game first launched, I was actually one of the people who had that experience of being on the same planet as someone and not being able to see them. And it was pretty great because I'm just messaging back and forth with this guy. And we're like, yeah, we're both here. And I'm like, I'm standing here. And he's like, so am I. And I'm like, okay, well, you don't exist here, dude. So it was pretty sad. It was depressing because it was cool to like have that moment of like, oh, shit, I found someone in the universe. I'm going to see them. And then it just kind of all faded away because you still had that mm-hmm. expectation of, yeah, if, if you, because that's what I think he had said is if you find someone, you will see them. And then that, that was not the case. Yeah, well, it was that back and forth. And, you know, I have some sympathy for the, the that whole situation just because of how it kind of came about. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day. You can't act like that wasn't a bold-faced lie. Thankfully, that game just got its chance to survive. And uh, I think the lesson I learned, ironically, was going back to then when that game turned around in our early days of the podcast, I thought game developers can learn that you can release a product that doesn't fulfill everyone's wishes. But if you give it enough time and support and you communicate with the people, you can make a game that's huge and can rebound and become a game that people forget ever even had bumpy days, realistically. And so I thought, Anthem, here we go. EA has the perfect game to look at. And then they announced Anthem next. And I was like, here we go. They're doing it. They're realizing that this doesn't have to be wasted money. And then they go, never mind. (laughs) And so I've learned that you can't expect game developers or the market to learn in the way that you would think. Because either A, they're people who are behind dollars and cents and they're not looking at what would work from a game and they're just looking at the immediate picture. Or there's more to the money aspect of it than we could ever understand as consumers only. Unfortunately. Yeah. We'll never know the answers to life's biggest questions. (laughs) (sighs) Never will. But you know what, Chris? What's up? Maybe, just maybe one day we'll learn the answer to why Sony is seemingly ready to leap into the NFT ring. Among things listed in a new patent for the technology, Sony touts things like cross-platform use and trading. The technology is seemingly set to allow for selling or trading for NFTs no matter what platform you are on, despite consistent outcry from gamers, at least specifically in the internet (laughs) bubble. It sounds like companies like Square Enix, Ubisoft, and now Sony are just as committed as ever to the new coming tech in many ways still burgeoning um you know i've been trying to personally really gauge and be reasonable with my idea of how how much i want to swing negativity in the face of nft announcements there's a part of me that's like if enough, if, if enough people are doing this, right, if the same amount of people that we saw cry about Sonic's design and Star Wars Battlefront pay to win are, are talking about not wanting NFTs, then why do they push on anyway? So part of me wants to be like, well, they have to be negative because what you're hearing around them is consistently negative from other people. Mm. But then if I take a further step back and look at my own understanding of NFTs, which is pretty early like i don't have a lot of of descriptions um 
Legal Eagle has a video up where he describes them and I watched it and learned a lot at the time. And a lot of that has just fell through the cracks because I don't interact with things in that capacity. And I trust when he says that they definitely have some scam-like mentality behind a lot of the ideas for them. But I don't have a strong enough opinion on NFTs because I don't... Currently, I don't see where they're going to interact with the way that I interact with games anyway. And so to that end, it feels like me looking at this and saying it's a scam or it's a bad thing. I can't do that with a wholehearted thing, but I can at least say that it looks like it's something that the people that it does seem like it might impact do not appear happy with. So Chris, mm-hmm. as someone who's a little more into online gaming and skins and things that Apex gives you, so stuff I don't really care about, with what your current understanding of NFTs are, how do you feel like you have a, a grasp on it? you feel like you have a pretty good one? And how do you feel like it's going to impact gaming for you and other people that play more online community-focused games than I do? Um, I mean, I don't know. Right, because there's there's an art like it, it's one of those things where if every skin in Apex that I had was an NFT and I could buy, trade, sell them, like maybe I would engage in that market. But I'm of two minds of with NFTs. I think they're dumb and I also don't see what the problem is. Do you mean that you don't see what the problem in insofar as if you just don't want to interact with it you can avoid it yeah because for me it's the same thing as like 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 i'm I'm sorry i know people like it but i think the pokemon card market is, is stupid it's dumb like you're you're gonna you're really gonna sit here and tell me that this charizard card from 1993 is worth a million dollars go fuck yourself that's just not true it's just straight up not true it's only true because assholes like logan paul are spending that much money on them Right. Well, it's collectors, right? But that's the real reality: is that collectors drive that market price, and for right. some reason, that that particular industry's collector stuff is just insane. I, dude, I sold a Charizard the other day for fifty five dollars. Yeah, that I've just had sitting around. I've been selling all the Pokemon cards. I sold one for a hundred dollars the other day. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I've made a few hundred dollars the past couple of weeks from cards that I don't use sitting oh, around. For sure. But Pokemon is weird that the meta doesn't seem to drive the price so much as just collectors and kids who want this particular card because yeah. they saw somebody with it. Whereas for the most part, Yu-Gi-Oh! is like, dude, that card's $50. It must be like a really good card that you can use in almost every deck or at least the deck you can use it in is really powerful. Right. And that's when you get a $50 card or a $100 card. And, and that's the thing. My my thing is not to talk shit about you or the people who no, engage in the market. That's totally fine. But it's just the fact that it exists, right? There, I cannot find a tangible difference between a Pokemon card and an NFT. And if a pokemon card if a pokemon card has value to a certain select of the audience but not the vast majority of it then what's the difference between an nft having value to certain people in the market but not others i think the biggest thing that concerns me especially with this the sony one is cross platform play what does that mean why would Microsoft allow you to do that? Why would PC allow you to do that? Why would Sony allow you to do that? Why would Call of Duty allow you to do that? 
Like, I don't see how any of this stuff works unless you're going to sit here and tell me, okay, you can sell this Octane skin for five grand, but Sony gets a third, Microsoft gets an eighth, Steam gets a fourth, and then I'm left with $30, right? Well, it goes back to Sony's argument against cross-play online games, which is if you're allowing people to buy skins that they can use on my system, but they didn't buy it from me, but they spend almost all their time on my system. Why do I not get to reap that reward? And mm-hmm. you come into that same worry. But real quick, if I can take a step back, well, something I want to ask is, um, I'm not saying you're wrong or anything necessarily. I'd have to hear a better you know, explanation of what you mean. Um, but you say like you don't see a tangible difference between uh, an NFT and the Pokemon card. Do you think... Or I guess I should say, do you not think that the difference of one being a physical piece that is genuinely limited by production and exists outside of a computer and blockchain, do you not see that as enough of a of a separator for you? Why can't or do they you print- think that? Go ahead, go ahead. Why can't they print more Charizards? Well, they can, but it's that's not what that I'm saying. One. They can make more NFTs. Yeah, you absolutely can. But just to go through the thing of um, partially the reason collector stuff goes is that definitely for things that go under eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the biggest collector's markets are actually for things that just stopped existing and yeah. they don't make them anymore and there's no way to get them. And Pokemon has similar things where a lot of the cards that are valued had printing errors that you would almost have an impossible time trying to replicate mm-hmm. now. And so that comes with a certain level of, well, that's how the cards are made at the time. And that. Yeah. So I get it. There's still a scarcity to them. If Pokemon went under today, there you're not going to, and it won't clearly, but no. you wouldn't have more Charizards. You wouldn't be I'm, able to do that. I'm not so saying it's not. How more does that difficult? differ from NFTs where, again, you can make more NFTs, but I always think of it as the digital nature. And that's why people are a little more like, eh. I don't really, uh, I, I don't own it. I, I own rights to something that just floats in a blockchain. That's it. Whereas the other thing, like you, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Like I own this Guardian Chimera card that's right yeah. in front of me. I own it. Like I, I physically have it. Regardless of the fact that it's a $10 Yu-Gi-Oh card, I have it. Yeah. I own this. I, I don't own an NFT no matter how hard I try. I own rights to something that exists in perpetuity on the internet. Sure. There's a tangible difference there, but what I'm more talking about, I guess what I was more talking about is the markets, right? The markets, I don't see the difference in market because if I want to to buy an NFT from Bong Ripper 69 and sell it to Bong Rip Less 68, like, it it doesn't matter. You know, people argue the environmental costs, fine. That's a whole separate issue. But I guess when I see the uprising of it as, oh, putting this game, this in games is so stupid, I don't really see the issue. If I'm not affected by it, then I don't care. Now, if you're going to sit here and tell me that Respawn is putting NFTs into Apex, so they're not focusing on skins anymore for free-to-play players that aren't NFTs, then I would I would be worried about it. But I don't think they would do that because then how, why would you, if there's no variation in skins, the NFT doesn't matter anyway. Right, unless it's that you know what I mean. If everyone's walking around in a base Fortnite skin and you can only spend fifty grand on a Dragon Ball Z Goku skin, I don't. It's I don't know that it's as appealing. Maybe it is. It probably is. But 
the market closes closes to a much tighter thing. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I guess so. Go, going back before we get too far away from it, you did say something that I think is really important. Okay, most people aren't really under or thinking or even understanding, and that includes us, I bet, to some degree. But what are the motivations for these companies getting into it? Definitely a company like Sony talking about it being cross-platform using allow and allowing trading. Is it because they get to create the in this system? Is it because they're creating the NFTs and make money off of the initial sale? Or is it they have a way to, as part of the blockchain, say, well, we created the NFT, so every time it sells, a certain percentage of that comes back to us as the creator? Well, I, I, that's where some of my ignorance of blockchains comes into play. But what is every each of these companies has to have a motivation. And the one motivation that we know all companies share is profit. So how does this help go toward profit? I think, I'm not sure I understand. I think that. you came very close. And I, I personally feel like that answer is actually very easy. Right. Sony makes five NFT skins. Mm-hmm. Right. Each one of those NFTs, like Sony gets a rip because it's on PlayStation. You're selling those through PlayStation. They get 30%. Yep. One of those NFTs sells 40 times. Okay, hold on. In your, posi- in your position, they get 100%. They're selling on their storefront, but they also created it. So are you well, talking it, about why they I want can, like, Ubisoft I to can do it? Sell, no, 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 no. If I can sell it on the PlayStation store and make money off it and give Sony a rip of that after I bought it the first time, Right. Understood. You're talking about Sony insofar as they're like a TCG player or like a selling yeah. website. Because that's what they're they saying. They make a commission. You, you can sell and trade them. Right. Okay. So just mm-hmm. think about the, that right there. That's where you see the profit margin. They make five skins. Those five skins each get sold 200 times. They've only done the work to make five skins, but they've gotten 30% off 200 sales each. Right. That's that's it. It's free money. For Sony, so it's a free thirty percent on every sell. Cross-platform use, right? So what that, if you sell to my Xbox? But that's why it doesn't make sense to me to begin with. <laughs> okay, that's why point. the cross-platform doesn't make sense. If it was Sony-centric, SFTs, right? Sony, Sony fungible tokens. Then I would understand <laughs> it a lot more because then it's less of less of this weird nebulous thing and more of a yeah. We have skins that are through all first-party games. You can put this. Aloy skin on your Ellie if you want to. It's it's a thirty thousand dollar skin based on this imaginary market that we're making up. But then just again, you think about that profit. That skin sells for thirty grand, and then I sell it to you for thirty one. You sell it to them for thirty five, and then Sony's now gotten a thirty percent rip on each of those sales after doing the work on one uh, outfit. That's the profit margin. It's free money. Once you make it, it's free money. Assuming it's the the assuming the market blows up enough, you're just getting free money off that one skin. It's so that's to me is the argument. Earlier we talked about how Sony and Microsoft both mm. now this is where they differ considerably from someone like Ubisoft or Square, who are also quite heavily investing into NFTs. Sony and Microsoft, if Microsoft were to join this, uh, both have interest outside of gaming. They have yes. interest in tech and hardware. Um, do you think this being specifically, I mean, yeah, it talks about game consoles, but what do you think the chances are that this is something that Sony is not as focused on it being used in the gaming world, but somehow this may interact with some of their other business structures? And this is really a patent for Sony at large and PlayStation. Excuse me, PlayStation is just a small part of that plan. 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be think, surprised. Or do you think PlayStation's at the core of the plan and everybody else, every other area of Sony can just benefit from the tech that's already there? I mean, I wouldn't have to imagine that PlayStation would be the core because it, in the end, I think the most profit is going to come off you using this one skin and selling it over and over again. That's, I think, where the most money comes out of. But then once they have the tech for NFTs, they can just put NFTs in their TVs if they want to. Like, it's not yeah. a, a matter of keeping it just PlayStation. Once it's made, it can be made for everything. But I think if you look at it as PlayStation Central because it's, hey, we want this bow skin for Horizon to work in The Last of Us, and you can yeah. use it in Uncharted. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm excited about potential with blockchain technology, just not NFTs. That's the thing. I think there's really cool uses for that tech, but they're not using it right. The biggest hurdle I continue to see is that people talk about that, right? Like we use bow skins across multiple games. Well, that gets really complicated when you start thinking about like, well, you can use this bow skin from Far Cry 7 and The Last of Us uh, Factions. And those are two different games, two different engines, two different publishers, two different asset styles and teams. How do you overcome making something like an NFT if that is its use, right? How do you overcome being able to have a skin and putting it on multiple things in a way that it can seamlessly and easily go between games without each developer having to be like, okay, now we have to incorporate this skin into our game so that whoever owns this NFT, this one or however many people can use the skin because we had to hard code it into our game or can it be something where it pulls into the game and goes, I recognize this skin and I can, there's a, there's a code that it goes through and it automatically finds a way to warp this skin onto this item. And that's like my big question. I mean, I couldn't answer that question for you, but I think that would, that would have to be what the technology is. I don't know. And if it's not that, I don't see I don't see the benefits personally. I don't I don't see the benefits either. Like I said, I think blockchain and gaming has a place, but I think that I did I just don't think it's with what they're doing it for. The problem is technology is for profit and the best way to use tech to use blockchain, in my opinion, especially for gaming, you wouldn't make a profit. And my other worry is like, what happens when someone creates an NFT that makes sense for the style of game or what it is? And then you try and allow, if NFTs are supposed to work regardless, then what happens if, let's say that there's a leisure shoot, a leisure suit Larry game that comes mm-hmm. out and they make an NFT of like a girl's boobs, right? In game character boobs, whatever it be. And then you're like, well, I want to go take these NFTs into my Fortnite character. And Fortnite clearly wouldn't want that. So are you going to tell me that you're going to block certain NFTs? Are no, NFTs going to be tagged with a certain level of, well, this is what their ESRB rating would equal? This is, is this mature or family friendly? You, you got to imagine. Do you, you, do you can, get what I'm saying? Yeah. I, you just got to imagine you could, you, you'll be able to put some leisure suit Larry Yiddies on Goku. That's what you'd have to imagine. <laughs> it's a it's a big curiosity on my part. But enough with that. How about we move on into some rumors uh, that are swirling around? Uh, as of last week, rumors are once again swirling around the internet of PS5 Pro and PS5 Slim models approaching and arriving by late 2024. With Pro models being assumed to focus on accelerating ray tracing performance in games, as Mark Cerny published a patent with that express aim recently. And as anyone who may not know, Mark Cerny acted as the system architect on both PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 and PS4 Pro, I guess, for what that's worth. Um, 
Um, so with all that in mind, right, and what we're looking at here, we got a couple of questions from our listeners. Chris and I talked about this when the initial rumors of a PS5 Pro came about a, you know, six to eight months, maybe a year into PS4. Um, so it's been a little while, but since they're kind of cropping back up and with this thought process, Rude Days 93, one of our patrons, he says, so with the Pro consoles, I was thinking instead of adding a few perks, for example, ray tracing, extra frames per second, you know, being able to have that, etc., keeping it at a lower price, I would like it if either Sony or Microsoft went out and did a premium console at a $800 to $1,000 price range. Would you be interested in a pro like this? Or is it too far into entering the expensive PC space for it to work for you? Chris, what are your thoughts here? Or would you eat that up? No. Why? It's far too expensive. Like... I I'm will I was willing to invest in my PC because I can always upgrade it and I don't have to worry about the PC two coming out in 2028. But why would I drop eight hundred to a thousand dollars just to have to drop eight hundred to a thousand dollars after again dropping five hundred dollars on a launch model of the PS six? Like why would I do that? You're telling me like every like I'm. I'm separated by $1,300 on gaming hardware is separated by two years. No shot. Mm. Like if they're going to release that console, just release a PS six. Just do that. So you're kind of scratching on what I think the issue is. So my answer is that there's a part of me that would like to see what they could do at that price range. Uh, and if I had a really good month for, you know, commission or if I had a really good bonus or something, you might catch me even buying it. But the value proposition for a pro console, uh, and even Microsoft knew this, is that you can't go too much higher. Sony knew to keep at the same price as the PS4 originally was at launch, and Microsoft went $100. Um, well, technically, they went to the same price that they were at launch, $500. Uh, that was with the Kinect, but point being... Um, you can't go too much higher, but the value proposition should be that the small, and it is small, the niche section of the market in the console market that will pay for that as opposed to keeping the base console is quite small. And you only make it smaller by driving that price up more and trying to squeeze even more power out. So... The secondary problem that comes as a result of that is I think by trying to crank up to that level, you start to diminish the impressiveness of a potential PS6 down the line because you've pushed these, you've pushed modern specs so far that when the PS6 comes, it now has to be X amount better than the PS5 Pro that is $1,000. And it has to do it at, again, a more reasonable price maybe a $500 range like Chris mentioned, right? Maybe $400 range, somewhere in that ballpark. And it's got to be able to try and wow you two to three years after this pro comes out. And that becomes significantly harder when you've upped the idea of what this console can do. So to Chris's point, it's almost just worth releasing PS6 at that point and just foregoing a PS5 Pro entirely because you're making it harder and harder for your engineers to be able to squeeze the way that consoles really work, which is using simpler and potentially more outdated hardware. 
in a way where developers can hyper-focus and develop for it and squeeze power that is comparable to very to thousand dollar PCs already out of a, a five hundred dollar box, yeah, and that's the value proposition of PlayStation Five. The value proposition of PlayStation Five is not that you're getting something that's the same as if, if PS Five was a thousand dollars and it performed like a two thousand dollar PC. That starts to feel like diminishing returns when you can get a five hundred dollar PlayStation that outperforms my seventeen hundred dollar PC right here. If I'm being honest, yeah. like depends on the game, and I have way more control on my PC. But realistically, my PS5 often looks better and is more optimized and has less issues, or at least it's comparable, the same as this computer I spent seventeen hundred, eighteen hundred dollars on. I can do way more on the computer, way more. And like Chris said, there is no PC2 coming down the pipeline, so my games continue to work in pop, in perpetuity on that system. But that's not what I wanted, so. I would really hope that a pro console doesn't break past a $600 price point, if at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be real curious to see. Do you think it'll try and fill that same $500 role while dropping the disk driveless PlayStation 5 down to uh, $300 to compete with the Series S? Yeah, I imagine like this will replace the disk drive version, and then the slim will be the digital version kind of thing, if I had to make my guesses. Yeah, this the slim would have the optional disc drive. Yeah, this one would be fully with all its parts. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting. But we go to another question entirely. Sweet oh, Grand Turismo Jones asks, "Yeah, I got a question. What the fuck good is a PS5 Pro when we still don't have any legit PS5 games?" And I would argue that personally, I find that a bit hyperbole. But the spirit of the answer is that. We have yet to see PS5 be completely untethered from PS4 in any super meaningful way. You have a few games, Ratchet & Clank, Demon's Souls, that did not try and do cross-gen. But many people have had the sentiment that PlayStation 5 has not yet made good on what they think the promise of the system could be. Do you agree with that, Chris? You're muted. Yes, I do agree with that. <laughs> um, I, like I, we still don't have a regular set of PS5 exclusive, PS5 exclusive. I've got two games I'm looking forward to on Friday that are both on PS4. You know, yeah. it's, it's three years later. Like factions might be coming to PS4 if you see look at some of the LinkedIn posts they're making. So. Why? Yeah, he's not wrong. Why do I need a PS5 Pro? You know, I'm at the point where I'm kind of asking myself, did I really need a PS5? <laughs> you know, there's been nothing I really would have missed. Yeah, you're you know? right. You wouldn't have missed the experience of the game at all, but you would have missed the, the features that are quality of life from PS5. Yeah, but that's one of those things, right? Is it a you quality don't know of until life? You have it. Exactly. It can't, yeah. it can't be a quality of life improvement if your quality of life was never improved. Like, if you don't know the difference, like, it, you know yeah. what I mean? I understand. Yeah. So it, it's weird because like going, I can't think about going back now. Right. I don't, I don't want to think about having had to have played God of War <laughs> Ragnarok at 30 frames per second. Oh, I don't want to think about having to play Ratchet, and, which Ratchet and Clank is actually one of the few examples. So I won't even mention it, but I can't imagine 
being like, oh, I have to play Spider-Man Miles Morales with no 60 frames per second or ray tracing because 60 frames per second, the the performance RT mode is sick in that game. It's so yeah. good. It's it's it is. genuinely insane. Um, and those load times, you know, it's like, but like you said, Chris, I wouldn't know any of this had I never made the move up. So it is an interesting proposition there. Um I do feel like PS4 Pro came at a time where we're at the same point of the lifespan, but the thing is PS4 Pro didn't have the problem of, or the PS4 rather, didn't have the problem of being terminally (laughs) cross-gen, which in many ways PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X as well have been either terminally cross-gen or to some degree, we're still learning about how people feel about the Series S and how it acts as a holdback as well. So with those things in mind, this generation does feel like it's never really gotten to run to begin with. So talk of a PS5 Pro is weird. But I guess the one upside I'll say here is that if PS5 Pro is supposed to be coming by late 2024, and we're talking about 2023, a year that's supposed to actually have a number of PS5 exclusives, games made entirely with PS5 in mind. And then, assumedly, you would imagine that P- the 2024 year would as well. Then we have roughly a year and a half between now and a potential PS4 or PS5 Pro for that for that to be met, for that question to be like, oh, now we have PS5 games. Now we can look at hey, what does Ratchet and Clank look like with a PS5 Pro patch? Oh, mm. it can do full ray tracing at 60 frames per second uh, and full 4K? Sweet. That's yeah. cool. You know, it's maybe, maybe not. No, I mean, there's definitely arguments for it. Um, yeah. Do you think you would, do you think you'd go with like by 2024 with what we know, do you think you'd be interested in, in shelling out 500 for a PS5 Pro or do you think you'd just stick with what you have for now? With what we know. Of course, that could change drastically. It's a hard question for me to answer because unlike you, I can't even take advantage of the PS5 to its fullest extent. So Why so? Why me? I I guess I'm not... Well, because you have a TV that can output better than mine, right? I'm pretty... Yours does 120, am I right? Uh, No, mine actually doesn't. Okay, then you would been then you're in the yeah. same position as me. I don't have a TV where I could. I bought. <laughs> go ahead. I, bu- I bought the year before they oh, yeah, switched to uh, HDMI 2.1 or whatever it is that you required for 4K output at 120 frames per second, mm-hmm. and also one year before they introduced. Um, um, why am I skipping out on what it's called right now? Um, variable frame rate. Got yeah, it. Uh, whatever it's called. Like, it would be a selling point on the box for me to be like, this does 4K 120 guaranteed in every game. Every game that VRR, gets a patch will be upgraded. Refresh. Right. Like, you can give yeah. me that, and I'd be like, that's cool. But for me personally, I'd still need to upgrade to a better TV or mon- or a better monitor. So, yeah, sure. I could see myself buying it, but I think I'd have to see what it is. And then I'd have to see, do I, can I even use this properly? Well, it's funny you say that because that's what PS4 Pro was, right? Mm-hmm. PS4 Pro was like, hey, we're doing HDR and it's going to be a really big part of this and we're going to do 4K and that's a really big part of this. And at the time, I had a 1080p TV and I'm yeah. like, okay. So when I bought the PS4 Pro, the same exact time, I bought a 43-inch Sony Bravia 
4K HDR TV so that I could go ahead and see the benefits. And it was pretty amazing. But, you know, it's funny. I saw more of a jump moving from that 4K HDR Sony TV to my LG OLED. (laughs) Yeah. Where I was like, this almost feels more like a generational leap than what I saw by going up to <laughs> PS4 Pro, surprisingly. Much better HDR. It really showcased that thing. So I guess it's that thing of growing pains. And it was also a $600 TV where the... <laughs> it was three years later, but point being, my uh, OLED TV was you know $1,400. So is what it is. Um, yeah. One thing that I want to see taken more advantage of and i guess that could be bumped to the next level on a ps5 pro but i feel like ps5 because of its variable refresh rate support and tvs that do support it there's a very small section of gamers who actually can benefit from what i think is a really great in between where you get full 4k resolution at 40 frames per second Mm-hmm. with all the graphical details that you anticipate. And they use that variable refresh rate to get you there. But the problem is, is if your TV does not do VRR, it can't. Because the way it does 40 frames per second is by pretending that it's outputting at 120 frames per second, but then just dividing that by three. So as long as your TV can clearly divide that uh, 120 hertz, it'll do it that way and lock it in. And that's a cool feature that I can't use because my TV doesn't support 120 hertz. Yeah. I mean, that might be something where they're like, 4K 60 ray tracing, done. Not even a worry. That would get sweet, man. But I think they're gonna hit that one leap for. And this is the thing: I'm looking to get a TV on Black Friday. Like I'll probably have a TV for Black Friday that I can do all this on. But as of right now, when we're having this conversation, my shitty Roku TV is not really taking advantage of the PS5. Just throwing it out there. You saw my TV. I did. I I suggest. And they they always have Black Friday deals. I suggest that you get at least the B series OLED. Mm. Look, they're incredible. They have 120 frame support. They have you can get one right now. If, what do you have? A 65, 55? What? Uh, 55 or 65. So if you have a 65, I think you can get like I, Target had a the the B series like so the B two or whatever for this uh, year for fourteen hundred dollars at 65 inches with VRR support, 120 hertz support. All that, yeah. I Incredible mean, HDR on Amazon. It's twelve. Yeah, see, twelve hundred dollars. Why not? I'm yeah. just telling you. The only downside would be that once you make the change, I think most people who've had OLED TVs and get used to them, it is the same as PlayStation Five, where it's like the quality of life that comes with it. It's I. I never want to go back. Oh yeah, that's like, why I. You look like that. ass on this 1080p confidence TV <laughs> that I have in the game room. That I'm pretty sure. What were you playing Elden Ring on this TV, or did I pull my 4K back here for you? I think I pulled no, I the th- old Sony. You might have. I don't remember, but I was definitely <laughs> playing Elden Ring on one of your TVs. That's so not you. One hundred percent work. Um. All right. So, with that behind us, we have a couple more news pieces, and then, as always, we're going to wrap the show up with questions that we did not get to within the main show. Uh, so, last few pieces of news. After a drought of information that has lasted years, Spider-Man fans have finally gotten an indication of the plans for Insomniac's next entry in the series. Venom voice actor Tony Todd has seemingly spilled the beans on Twitter about the plans for the title. Quote, looks like September. Massive publicity coming in August. Commercials start dropping in August, so I'm told. Hold on to your 
and hold breath. (laughs) Kind of be necessary, end quote. Like with any unconfirmed report, the best advice here is to take this with a grain of salt. But this is one of the times that the rumors comes from clearly a very credible source, though he could still just be either misinterpreting something, confused on something, uh, though it seems most likely that he maybe just said something he wasn't supposed to say. I think that's true. The, the thing I loved is that he followed up hours later with a picture of him in like a hot tub with his face like halfway in the water. It was like, no more Spider-Man updates for me. Don't believe what I said. I may not even be the real Venom. <laughs> Did he really say that? Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, He's it's, like, it's I'm in good. trouble. <laughs> yeah, I can only assume that someone from Sony or Insomniac called him. It was like, bro, what the fuck? And he was like, oh, yeah, about that. You see? Sorry. It's hilarious because I'm looking at his Twitter now because I wanted to see something like that. And it looks like he's burying it. <laughs> he's tweeting out like the PS Plus offerings. He's tweeting out like, hey, you should play Neo. The world ends with you. <laughs> it's so funny. PSVR 2 stuff. It's like you're going to make oh, this great. up to us by uh, pumping PS Plus this month. Yeah, you should definitely find the picture that he posted. I hope he hasn't deleted it because it was very funny. I'm, I'm looking, but... Yeah, um, I don't know if any of this is true. I hope it is because it would be hilarious if they're the petty kings. He says, he says, no more hints about Spider-Man 2. It was all a fever dream. Blame it on jet lag. Who knows? I might not even be Venom. <laughs> yeah, I just saw it. That's hilarious. He's a funny oh, dude. That's, that's good times. But oh. what I was saying is I, I do hope the release date is September. Because putting it up right against Starfield would be very funny. I've wondered, because I think Sony's kind of had an idea for a date for a while. And I Mm -hmm. think it was already going to be September. Sony in the past, and I try not to get them on everything here, but Sony in the past used to try and release series, entries in the same series around the same time. So like God of War almost always came out in like March. And they eventually started kind of eschewing that. Um, But... I think they have a want to do that. And if we remember, the first Spider-Man game came out in September. So I could definitely see them being like, hey, this September, we're right back at it again. Clearly, Miles Morales didn't come out in September. So that might prove that theory wrong to begin with. Uh, But we've already talked about the fact that Miles Morales isn't necessarily a a full game, but it's also not not a full game. So, yeah, this would be interesting. But... Do you think Sony would have ever considered moving it or even would be considering moving it uh, with Starfield hitting there? Because I've seen a lot of people on Twitter kind of doing this Starfield versus Spider-Man and which one's going to be bigger. And well, Game Pass will make Starfield less big regardless because the money aspect. And some people are like, yeah, but more people will play Starfield because Skyrim is a bigger name. And then other people are like, well, you're not, you don't know how big Spider-Man is. What are your thoughts here? Do you have any inkling? I don't even know that they they brush up against each other in a meaningful enough way to compare them. People who want to play Starfield and Spider Man will will buy both titles, in my opinion. Yeah, I th- they're not. There's not a lot of crossover. I think the bigger thing here is more which one did you choose to play first? That'll be now, the bigger. Bigger in which way? Do you think it'll impact just social? No, I just mean in terms games? of yeah. I mean in terms of audience, the question is going to be. Which one did you choose to play first? I feel like gamers in quotes is those people are going to play both the games. Yeah. It's just like, I would be willing to bet more people play Spider-Man first. 
but that's me personally. Um, I think if we were back in the 360 era, I think this would be a lot more interesting because then you'd have the sales data to be like, wow, Spider-Man sold 20 million and Starfield sold 10 on the Xbox. Like incomparable install bases also. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it's really hard to look at, well, okay, Xbox has got like 20 million. Yeah, maybe consoles out there. Maybe 15 million consoles out there. I know it's like half of what PS5 is at. Um point being, it's got that and then it's, it it does of course have PC day one, uh which is essentially an endlessly large market. Um, so it just makes comparing the games hard, but I think the bigger question is, should they be compared? And I, honestly, I don't think that there's any meaningful reason to compare them. Uh, like you said, the people who are going to be fans of Starfield only are going to be going towards Starfield. And the people who are fans of St- Spider-Man only are going to try and play that regardless of if they're a big gamer to begin with. And then there'll be those people in between that just play both. Yeah. And of course, the people who can't play Spider-Man because they don't own a system that's playable on and vice versa. People who can't play Starfield because, oh, well, I was going to play it. But when, you know, the Bethesda thing went through, it yeah. meant that my PS5 plans for Starfield were dashed. Yeah. And the sad thing for Bethesda and Starfield is that the captive, the captive audience for, for Spider-Man is double the size. So if they're going to sit here and look at this like 50 Cent versus Kanye West back in the day. Star- Spider-Man's going to win, but if you want to look at this as what's better for the ecosystems, I think we'll both they'll both be fine. Well, I, and the curiosity is how many people because Spider-Man's clearly huge, bigger than Starfield. If we're just being honest, but Skyrim's a massive game too. Um, but when you look at that, the real question is what percentage of people who love Spider-Man are also PS5 gamers who also care to play games at all. And so it's, it's not as easy. It's like because Bethesda's entire popularity comes from them being a gaming company, it would make sense that there's a larger audience of people who are trying or excited to play their next game because that's what they're known for. Whereas Spider-Man is a property that existed well outside of games and never performed particularly well in games until recently. Um, and the movies have gone, you know, billions of dollars in the past <laughs> multiple times. And even Amazing Spider-Man, which is a controversial movie, still almost broke a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, still almost hit a billion. So well, you want some some hard, cold data for you? Yeah, at, least, at least from this website I'm looking at. Skyrim has sold, as of 2022... 30 million total units. Okay. Spider-Man and Miles Morales have sold mm-hmm. 33 million units. Mm. So I don't know that there's an argument for Spider-Man being bigger or Skyrim being bigger than Spider-Man. I know that's combined units, but at last I remember Spider-Man PS4 sold what? 20 million. Something in that ballpark. Yeah. So I, even if you look at just Spider-Man PS4, that has not been out for 11 years and re-released 87 times. I don't think, I think they're in the same ballpark of quote unquote fandom. Yeah. I just think they're fairly different fan bases. Yes. But I would agree. Either way, we'll see how that ends up coming around. Uh, I'm just here for the comedy. Got, uh, I guess, actually two more pieces of news. Uh, Ubisoft has announced an AI innovation that is aiming to help developers and writers. Ubisoft Ghostwriter is aiming to ease the time spent on writing generic NPC dialogue. It comes from Ubisoft LA Forge, which is the research and development branch of the publisher. Um, or La Forge. 
probably is LaForge. La, yeah, LaForge. Way to Americanize <laughs> it, dog. <laughs> <laughs> you bastardized the French. I know, I'll tell you. Um, this is weird because I don't know if you saw, and I almost thought about putting it in the news, uh, but since we just talked about Spider-Man, let's continue going on with Insomniac for a second. Did you see this innocuous statement from one of Insomniac's engine developers that said their next game is going to have some cool dialogue tech in it? Yeah, I that saw that. they're pushing. And you start Very thinking specific like, news, so I didn't really. Yeah, it's super non-specific. So it's like, is it Spider-Man Two? Is it Wolverine? What What does he mean by dialogue? Is it like the Fuse first game two? where the character? <laughs> is it where, like, in the first Spider-Man game, if I can remember correctly, they had it to where, and it's probably true in um, Miles Morales, where if he's swinging. When he's talking, it's like they had the person record the, the line in multiple ways. So that if you're standing on top of a building, not doing anything, you sound relaxed. And if you're swimming, swinging, you sound slightly out of breath and like you're moving. Um, mm-hmm. Are we talking like that? Are we talking about NPC dialogue that is just randomized and gets said? Are we talking dialogue choices and trees? And you start like, so it's like, okay, well, Spider-Man seems unlikely fit for that. So... Could Wolverine have some kind of dialogue choice options? And what would that look like? So it's it's super nonspecific, but I almost wonder if it's more dialogue is the word he chose, and it's really more something like this, where it's like, hey, we're going to have a way to come up with better, more randomized AI dialogue. And definitely when they have voice AI on the level it is now, can you imagine them having it to where AI just contextually looks at what you did in the game. So like as Spider-Man, you swung really close to someone and instead of them having some canned pre-written thing that they got someone to record of like, Hey, you got too close. Hey, Spider-Man. Yeah. The the person, every time that you do it to someone, they react differently based on some randomized AI where they're like, this is what we think this person would do based off of this set of criteria around them. Like, Hey, you almost dropped my bagel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think for me, my guess... Or is Wolverine is, an RPG? <laughs> I, you know, you were talking and I was sitting in my head like, what if Wolverine is a, is a Fallout-style RPG where Wolverine is silent and you just got to pick the dialogue options and level up and you got vats in it and shit? No, I don't think that would happen. <laughs> but, um no, it's gonna be uh it's gonna be like an infamous style game with a morality system, and that means you get to choose what you say. I'm in. I'm down. <laughs> no, my my thought Listen, when Bob, I heard this was I'm a good Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, I'll take your mom to the doctor. Um <laughs> No, I your friendly neighborhood Wolverine. <laughs> my first thought hearing this was I had seen something for movies where it was like instant translating and it was using AI to make the Spanish dub of, I don't know, Scream Five Six, it would be Jenna Ortega's voice. Was it the um, Was it the footage of Fall? I think so. Where yeah. she's up on that tower and it's using AI to like morph her face to where the lip sync is perfect to that language, and it sounds. It, it is very interesting. Well, yeah, because what I had been seeing was like the Spanish dub. The AI does it in, I don't know, Gwyneth Paltrow's voice. And the Italian dub is in Gwyneth Paltrow's voice. So that was basically what I had seen. I wonder if they would, that would be, that would be great for video games. So who knows? 
Yeah, that would be interesting. You know, there's a Netflix series um, that I think got canceled, and I can't remember the name of it. 1899, maybe. Yes, I that was I can't it. remember which one it was. Uh, where they did all of the dubs with CG'd, where every dub was lip-sync matched by them going through and actually having AI, if I'm not mistaken, read, and they actually changed the, the actor's face. So they used the same performance and just went in and completely changed the lips and the wrinkles around to make it look correct. It's an interesting thing, and uh, there's a big conversation going around right now about how AI can help versus the worries of AI overtaking certain aspects of a career. Yeah. But I think um, but the more I look at it, I think there's a really good balance of AI getting things off the ground quicker and then having an artist touch come in and actually give it the the personality it would need. And it just cuts this process down for writers and artists and everyone. Because, you know, if you can go into... Um, if you can kind of go into a, an AI and kind of give a brief description of what you're thinking, like, here's my prompt for what I wish this character looked like, and then it can spit something out, you can be like, all right, I know exactly what to add to this to give it that extra layer of charisma. And is that inherently worse than having to draw something up from scratch? Well, if you think about the fact that you prompted it, you imagined what it would look like, and you just fed that data into something that you used as a tool. And sure. so I think that that's a good way to look at AI, but we'll have to see how it ends up going. I mean, the real question is how will AI writing help in getting games to where maybe just maybe a sequel to God of War or Horizon doesn't take five years. Yeah. They can finally change those goddamn boat animations. (laughs) (laughs) How dare they? They could have used AI for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm curious to see what ends up being with Insomniacs, but I do wonder if it's something similar to this because I think sometimes um, Sony's first-party teams just kind of do a version of things that other people are doing because if you remember, The Last of Us 2 has like contextual body animations for Ellie where if she's against a certain thing, like she'll brush up and move her arms in different ways in context to the environment and items around her. So like she'll put her hand against the wall when she's by one or if she's crouching and there's an item, she'll like kind of grab onto it and move past it. And that's all, it's like a system that goes through a series of multiple variations of animations and chooses the one that best fits that context. Um, Ubisoft had kind of already done something like that for For Honor, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. so it was just kind of like, here's Naughty Dog's take on the same idea, but in a single-player story-driven game rather than a multiplayer-focused game. So I almost wonder if this is the same thing, and we're really just seeing Insomniac saying, like, yeah, we're working on something similar. But Probably just, that one, yeah. You know, not saying it. Um, well, this brings us to the last piece of news. EA and DICE have celebrated the nearly 15-year history of games like Battlefield Bad Company 1 and 2 and Battlefield 1943 by announcing the decision to kill online servers and even delist the games from digital store shelves. You heard that correct. Delist Battlefield Bad Company 1 and 2 games with single-player campaigns that are fully playable regardless of servers. Um And then, of course, 1943, an online-only game. The original announcement of these games being lost forever included the platforming title Mirror's Edge, which DICE clarified later was a mistake. The games will be removed from sale on April 28th, and the servers will go down on December 8th. So if you want to go in and have some final fun in the uh, Battlefield Bad Company 2, one of the greatest first-person shooters, go do it. Go have a good time. 
Go throw a knife at someone's head. Go shoot a house <laughs> down from the studs. Have a blast. It's a wonderful game. Bring it back. It is a wonderful game. I would like to see them come back to it. Even just from a um, a tonal standpoint. Like, I really liked that that had, like, a different take on it than the battlefield, hyper-realistic warfare. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of nice that it was, it was almost like a more wacky Call of Duty. Like, it was willing to go even more like, fine, fuck it. This is like action war movie. <laughs> We're just going to have a good time and foul mouth characters that are, you know, willing to do some kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, battlefield 3 was a so big good. technical moment uh, for video games, and I understand that, but in many ways, it was a it was a very weird sidestep from Bad Company Two being the previous game before that. Yeah, there being no remake of Battlefield Bad Company Two is an insult. That's a game I would have thought would have gotten a remaster. Actually, yeah, and, uh, I yeah, would have thought that got a bad Battlefield One and Two Bad Company, but I guess other plans. I you know this goes back to that thing where it's like because it's Battlefield. If you release it, it does in some way compete with New Battlefield. Do you really want to do that? That's, I guess that's, that's the ongoing question. I mean, that's why they wouldn't. But why not just have your one year be Bad Company 2? <laughs> Here's this year's Battlefield. It's Bad Company 2. Have fun. And we gave the developers longer on Battlefield 6. Right. Battlefield <laughs> yeah. 2087. Like, all right, cool. I, I would I would have liked that. That game is so good. Yeah, you know, reaching into the nostalgia bag is a really easy way to help with fan problems. I it would have if I were to think of a time where they might have done this, the time to do this might have been after Battlefield 2030 whatever the hell it is. <laughs> 2042. 2042. Whenever that game came out and had a ton of server issues and wasn't complete and there was a lot of fan backlash, I think that would have been the time to be like we were quiet for six months, and guess what, guys? In three months, you'll be able to play Battlefield Bad Company 2 Remaster with servers and everything. Don't you love us? Do you remember when you loved Battlefield? But I don't know. That That's a... EA is a real hard company to really understand some of their motives. But I assume it's all driven by profit. So uh, I would assume that they have data that suggests that people would not play these games. Or at least it wouldn't be worth doing. I wouldn't assume that, but... But we're part of that core gamer group, right? We're the people that would. And so it's it's a little harder for us to think that at scale people wouldn't. But if a million of us would, and that equals a million sales, is that enough to justify this? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, fair, but... <laughs> fair enough. All right, Chris. All right, With Brett. that said, what do you think was up with Mirror's Edge being on here? Uh, Mirror's Edge will be coming down relatively soon. <laughs> Do you think it was just that it was always coming, but they didn't mean to announce it today? <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the Blue Point tweet. <laughs> like we accidentally announced Blue Points being bought. You know, bigger the the bigger question here though is why? Like the other games, it, there's a big question as to why for Battlefield Bad Company 1 and 2, but at least they have servers, so you can kind of understand it. Mm -hmm. But none of these are licensed games. These are all original creations. Why is the solution? We've been talking a lot about this idea of video game preservation and allowing people to play things in perpetuity for a long time. And Mirror's Edge is a, dude, that is a game-changing title. Whether or not it was a big title, 
it was a it was a splash in the gaming market about how you could make a game and how a game could work and how a game could look and what technology you could use and it was a big piece and i love that game i think it's a really unique and interesting game so of course the part of me wants that to be eligible forever you know uh, ea has done this a lot uh shadow of um Oh, Lord. What is it called? Shadow of the Damned. Uh, the grasshopper game that they did also got delisted. And I don't understand why. Because as far as I can tell, they own the rights. It's, it's, it's like delisting Dead Space. Why would you do that? You own this. Is that few of people doing it? Is there really that much of a cost preventative for you to keep a copy of this game on the same store that you keep everything else you own on? My my assumption is that they're paying some kind of money and they're not seeing enough of a return. That has to be the only reason you take it down. It's on some server costing them some amount of dollars and they're like, these dollars are not worth... And nothing else exists on that server? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying there has to be a reason and that has to be it in my head. You know, like Sony did with uh, PS Vita and PS3, which I think was smart is go, okay, fine, we'll keep the storefronts up, but you will not be able to use credit cards on that storefront. You'll have to get you'll have to add money to your wallet on a on a different server that does support that functionality. And then we'll just allow you to use the credit from your wallet in a different server. That way we don't mm-hmm. have to deal with payment management uh, within this because payment processing is a very expensive thing to deal with. So that that's definitely the the motivation behind Sony's, but Sony has a storefront. EA does have a storefront on computer but they also don't have to do that exclusively. So it kind of makes you wonder why is that the, the way to go? Definitely on console. I mean, is it because they don't want to, <laughs> we don't want Sony to make 30% of the four sales of mirror's edge that we get per year. So we're <laughs> just going to tell them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's just a matter of like, this sucks to read about, but if they're really only selling, and I know you're being facetious, but even still, if they're really only selling four copies of it, who really cares that it's coming off the store? You know, I don't necessarily agree with that take, but I'm just saying like at a certain point, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? No one's buying it. Yeah. And I already own the game. So there, it comes into that, but it's, it's, I give a shit in so far as I want to be able to tell someone who's never heard of, or never had the chance to experience that game and who may go, you know what? They were talking about mirror's edge today and it looks kind of cool. I looked it up and this looks really interesting and I went and bought it and I'm going to play it. Because like 100%. you know, we've had that like you know, B Raj uh, has has started collecting PS3 games in large part because of us talking about them. <laughs> My man, you know, so I I like that and I appreciate that he has that ability to go do that. I appreciate that me and you can be like, fuck yeah, let's pick up Naughty Bear and go play Naughty Bear, which we still haven't done. Yeah, which we still haven't done. <laughs> Chris, I'm realizing how little our schedules line up. It's, it's, it's very rough, difficult. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> um, so. It is what it is. But yeah, if it comes down, it's just, it sucks when you have that because it does feel like why do some companies just seem to cut cost, cut cost, cut cost? And it comes into a really uncomfortable question for some people, definitely when you're in a place like the US, where the only way to guarantee game preservation, because like we're seeing a similar thing with Nintendo shutting down the, uh, the Wii U store and the Nintendo 3DS store. And the problem with both of those is that those e-stores are not even account-linked. They're system-linked. So mm-hmm. if you buy a game on one, one 3DS, if you go and log into another 3DS, you do not own that game, big buddy. You've got to transfer that ownership to yep. that 3DS, which means you have to have the 3DS you bought the game on to do it. 
it's a big load of shit. And taking down the store only makes that more difficult because mm-hmm. if you ever have a 3DS get stolen that has all those things on it, you're fucked. Even if you yep. spent $20,000 like one guy did, I think it was the completionist, on every oh, game God. on the 3DS. Uh, it's like, what value is that once you do that? So the uncomfortable part of it is that the only way to guarantee that is to say at some point there's some kind of reason for companies or preservationists to have some kind of thing of like, hey, after 10 years, um, we can make a catalog of the games that you own that we can that can exist in perpetuity. And here's how it's preserved and here it is. And there's a lot of weird legal ramifications to that that Nintendo does not want to deal with, let alone the other manufacturers. Um, it's just an unfortunate thing because, you know, all things eventually decay. So I guess bringing our conversation full circle, maybe we should try and be more like the the Japanese who just go, you know what? You enjoy it while you have the opportunity to enjoy it. And one day when it's gone, it's gone. And that's it. Yeah. And that's that's the beauty of it. Maybe the, the beauty of Mirror's man. Edge is that we got lucky enough to live in the time when a game like that, that was kind of bold and daring and weird, got made. And got made by a publisher like EA. Yeah. That's the biggest thing about it. Right? Like, we're yeah. lucky that Dead Space exists. We're lucky that we got to live in a time where EA was like, let's Twice. make a horror game. <laughs> So, yeah, twice <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Brett, complete tangent, quick question for you. Yeah, go ahead, go for it. Nothing about this, by the way, just to clarify for the audience. That's my <laughs> ADHD brain. Does the PS2 play PS1 games? Yes, it does. Okay, cool. That's all I needed. Are you buying a PS2? I already own a PS2, but in my head, I'm like, maybe I should start PS1 games. <laughs> Good luck. They're rough, yeah. I know. I've seen it. CD-ROMs scratch very easy, which means that the scarcity I talked about earlier is even worse. Exists here. in a much harder. You know, the, the great thing of PS3 is that Blu-rays are really resilient. That was the big takeaway during the PS3 gen. Whenever I worked at GameStop, we would get 360 games in all the time, and they wouldn't even be that scratched up, and they just wouldn't work. And we'd get some crazy looking Blu-rays in. Oh, I bet. <laughs> And they worked every time. Well, that does explain why none of these show the bottom of the disc. (laughs) Not a common thing you'll see. And it's funny because it's a black bottom. You can easily see scratches on a camera. Promise you. They're not showing it for a reason. 100%. Anyway. But if you would like like the Activision Neversoft Spider-Man, I've got it. (laughs) My man. I got Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2. You want that? I got Twisted Metal 2. I've got some other random ps1 games uh, <laughs> i've got some of my 64 games i've got uh fur fighters in there oh fur fighters mm, fur fighters yeah it's uh like, it's what the it's what it's what the band the foo fighters based their name off of this <laughs> is david growl is the lead singer <laughs> <laughs> that, that would actually have been really good as if the one of the characters for fur fighters was david growl yeah i would like sadly that. that's not the case that is just dreamcast has a a lot of very odd <laughs> games <laughs> you should look up mdk2 it's a bioware game if you've never heard of it I've um heard the name but i've never actually seen it and you should look i hope <laughs> i hope it's the one that you get the picture of the dog it's like a basset hound smoking a cigar in space with four arms. <laughs> it's on Steam. And the alien, yeah, it is on Steam. It's a weird game, bro. It is it a very weird, weird game. And I loved it. And that was uh that was the Bioware days back then, man. 
Back when gaming was fun. I will say, the one thing I lament about our gaming industry is we don't get weird shit anymore. We do, but not nearly as often. And it usually is... The upside is it's so out of left field now that it gets way more eyes on it when something truly weird does come. Well, what is something you consider truly weird? Like Maneater? I, I think Maneater is actually a pretty... It's, it's a very gamey game. It's full yeah. of... It's full of references and jokes. I think Maneater is a great answer for that question, actually. Did you ever get Spider the video game? 100%. First of all, Maneater has told me if you give me a game with a compelling enough uh, upgrade system and it's just me being an animal doing that animal's things in a somewhat exaggerated extent, I will have a fucking blast. If the next (laughs) game is Cocaine Bear, you best believe. You best believe I'm going to have a great time. Yeah. I saw they were doing Cocaine Shark. I don't know if that was real or not, but I did see that. That would actually have been a great... You're talking about kooky games, right? Yeah. We can't We can't understate the fact that Maneater had a Illuminati DLC. <laughs> <laughs> I never played that, so I didn't know that. Yeah, hold on. Maneater Illuminati DLC. You should look it up. Um <laughs> It's called the Truth Quest. <laughs> that was the name of the DLC. And it, literally, there's a picture of the Illuminati pyramid on the front of the DLC cover. And it's just it's a big conspiracy thing in the New World Order. I never I'm played it, but I remember seeing the, the trailers for it and thinking, this is great. This is hilarious. Why wouldn't you? So, yeah, if they came out with a DLC that was Cocaine Shark, where a plane dropped some cocaine out and it landed in the ocean and a shark ate the cocaine and just started killing everybody, A, that's already the... I mean, the, minus the cocaine, that's basically the plot of, of Maneater. Man-eater. Yeah. Though Maneater has the added benefit that you were mutilated as a child after you watched... It, it's Bambi for sharks. You watched your mother get killed, and then you were thrown out and grew and sought revenge. <laughs> could you could you imagine if man if uh, Bambi was just Bambi being like, let's go? <laughs> it's called Brambo. <laughs> Bramby. Bramby, that's better. That was better. Yeah. All right, Brett. What's man. next on the news? You know what's next in the news? Nothing. Uh, what is next is some questions that we did not get to in the main section of the show because they didn't quite easily fit into any one thing. So the first one's going to be a little more goofy and uh, free free rolling out there, and then the next one will be a little bit. And then we're going to move into a new segment, a sexy segment. We'll get there. I'm excited we'll for get this. There. Um, first question comes from Jehudi MD, one of our patrons. He says, did we ever ask Chris Figs if he has any weird food combinations? Any new ones for you, Brett? Fries and ice cream, pineapple on pizza, cheese and potato chip sandwich, fried chocolate bars, if yes. Then have you had any meal that grew on you with age? Oof. So, Chris, yes. I feel like we may have had you once give I that. I think I did. But on the off chance that we didn't. You're a chef. We're talking about cooking controllers last week and making we braised Wii U controllers. So <laughs> if anything, I think this week you should be able to throw out some odd spicy food mixtures that you can put everybody on and have a good time. Um, so let's see some of the weird stuff I've done. I've done habanero chocolate wing sauce. That was mm. really good. It's delicious, mm. actually. Um 
I've done, I did a back to school, like teacher's burger. So it was a burger with, I think it was Swiss cheese, honey barbecue, and then caramelized apples. That was oh, dude, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it was it was fucking definitely phenomenal. with Swiss. Yeah, definitely with Swiss. Yeah, yep, that's that was really good. Um, caramelized apple, that dude. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a power move right there. Yeah. Hold on though, what kind of bun are we talking? Brioche. I say it, it almost feels like it has to be. You might be able to get away with a Hawaiian bun on that. Actually, yeah, you could get away with a Hawaiian bun. Although I don't like Hawaiian buns. I think they're too sweet, and I'm not looking for that. Like they're a dessert bun to me, and I think it's kind of yeah. Odd. I mean that's fair. That's fair. I think you could get away with it because it'll tie into the caramelized apple. But maybe the brioche exists in that kind of perfect in between mm-hmm. where it'll complement and allow the caramelized apple to kind of hit you and be the the standout. Brioche is the perfect bun. Brioche um, is the perfect bun. Mm-hmm. I do like a couple of others. I mean, it just depends on what I'm doing. Like I'm a big fan of Texas toast on burgers, but it depends on the oh burger. yeah. You got to have the right burger, though. Um, One that we're planning on doing is a ribs with a blueberry scotch uh, sauce. That's really good. Yeah. Sticking with the blueberries, I've done... I've seen it. I haven't done it yet. I saw it on TikTok, and I really want to do it. It's a spicy chicken sandwich with jalapenos, cheese, um, a blueberry sauce, and then blueberries on the top. I think that looks really good. Okay. I think that's cool. But the weird one that I do in my regular life, now that we're done talking about my gourmet weird shit, is uh, I like to take, I like to get a pizza with a Diet Coke, and then I like to dip the crust into the Diet Coke. I think that was my answer for the last one, but that is a phenomenal combination. Okay, hold on. Crust into a Diet Coke, but like any crust? Yeah, pizza crust, any crust. Like so, not like a specific type or kind nope. or from a specific pizza. So nice. like once you've once you've gotten all like the tomato sauce or whatever base bones, mm-hmm. like you've got it bone dry, just down to straight bread, just straight and bread. You just dip into that in the, the diet coke. Pizza, the diet coke, and you just eat so it. So why up. diet coke? As uh, what my family drinks is diet coke. Mm. Fair point. Do you think it would work well with like normal Coke, Dr Pepper, any of that? I, I'd have to imagine. I've never Dr Pepper. We're getting a little. We're getting a little bold with our seasonings here. It's a little, it's a, a little extra. But I, do I was think about it to say, is Dr good. Pepper very big up there? Because you know, it's I huge love Dr. in the Dr. South. Pepper. I love Dr <laughs> Pepper. I hate root I beer. Too. I hate root beer, but I love Dr I Pepper. I love root beer. I can't. My huh. mom ruined root beer for me, and nobody thinks that I'm in the right here. But I, she ruined it. How? So, when I was a kid, I used to do the swim team, right? And they had a subway <laughs> in the YMCA. So my mom, I would go, I would do my swimming and then my mom would get me Subway and she would always get me a Pepsi, but she would tell me that Pepsi was root beer. So I fell in love with root beer thinking it tasted like Pepsi because it was just Pepsi. So then one day I went out and I got a root beer and it was the most (laughs) jarring experience I've ever had in my life and I can't drink it anymore. That's fair, but I also have a, a very important question. Yeah. Which root beer did you get when you tried root beer and realized that that was not oh, the root beer like you did? Barks knew? or something. 
Barks is the most, and this is hot take moment for some people. Yeah. Barks is the most trash root beer is out there. It is so gross. I hate <laughs> Barks. If anytime that someone's like, I love root beer, and they're like, oh yeah, Barks is my favorite. I'm like discredited. I don't even <laughs> trust your root beer opinion. You are gone. You, the root beer association does not agree with you. We we the just RBA. pretend you don't exist. <laughs> I would rather drink mugs. I mean, dude, there are there are great value root beer tastes better than Barks. Barks is awful. It is the worst. But if you want a good root beer and you still want some variety, straight out of the can, just something you can go pick up in a 12-pack. A&W, it's classic. It kills. It's really good. If you want something a little higher up, get these little IBC glass bottle root beers that they have. Mm-hmm. Very good. I- and that glass, you know, that, that and then hold on, get one more up. Oh, uh, Abita, okay. who make real beer. Yeah. Also make a cane sugar, Louisiana cane sugar root beer uh, and brew it and put in a bottle that looks like a beer bottle. It's not alcoholic. Nothing. It's not like a not your father's root beer or something. It's just a root beer. Yeah. But it's really good. And uh, it's sweet, but it has just enough of that back end. I think a lot of people, the one thing that can be a little jarring for root beer, I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, but it's like that weird... Bitter's not the right word, but it's also probably the closest thing I can really think of that there's like a a weird burn that has a very mm-hmm. specific taste. And it's the reason I don't like root beer flavored um, you know, the dumb the, what are they called? Dum dums or whatever, the, yeah, the yeah. little suckers. Yep. Yeah, they're all the root beer flavor is awful because it, it like it's only that flavor. And I'm like, there's more to root beer than just that. You've you've ruined it by hyper fixating on this one flavor. It ch- those dum dums change the taste of the air in your mouth. They do. Do you? you un- okay, do. so you, you do understand what I mean by that? One, it's like <laughs> they they're like aromatic. Yeah. Like once you've once you've inserted it, you're gonna taste that for a while. That's what she you can says. pull. <laughs> you can pull the sucker out and throw it in the trash, and like three minutes later, you're still gonna be like, "I taste that damn sucker oh, when it's I in breathe." My nose. Yeah, that's yeah. the other thing. When you have one of those suckers in your mouth and you breathe in, it's like, oh, yeah, oh. it's not fun. Glad we're I do on the like same page them. There. I do like them, but it, they definitely change, like in a good way sometimes, right? Because the blue raspberry one, delicious. Fabulous. One of my favorite suckers of all time. 100%. So good. Uh, so, Blue Pop or Tootsie Pop, though? Ooh. I think Blow Pop. Tootsie Pops yeah. are just... I'm not always in the mood for a Tootsie Roll. No. Much but to I, my kids' selves' chagrin. But I can <laughs> always just be like, all right, I'm done with this. Uh, I think part of it is chewing Tootsie Pops is fucking gross. And it sticks <laughs> to your teeth way worse than gum. So when I get to the end of the sucker and you're not wanting to have to try and work to all the sucker off of the inner treat you're just like yeah cool i can just bite into it and start chewing and it's gum it's made to be chewed yeah well see that's the thing about blow pops and why they're insanely better than tootsie pops is because i've never got done the whole how many licks to get to the center of this lollipop thing i'm not an owl (laughs) so i've never done that personally (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah when you bite a blow pop and you chew that gum that gum still has blow pop fragments in it. Hmm? So it's like it's candy. Perfect. It's like candy rock inside of your gum. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad. See, this is why we're so simpatico because we understand that blow pops over Tootsie Rolls over Tootsie Pops. See, and the more important part is we realize that not every flavor works with a Tootsie Roll. No. Red and that's Tootsie the problem. Pops, better than red blow pops. But 
I would still take a red blow pop over a red Tootsie Pop. Me too, realistically, because it's yeah. more consistent. Dude, 100%. grape grape Tootsie Pops. Oh. <laughs> You're not a grape Tootsie Pop guy. Not a grape Tootsie Pop Are you a guy. grape Jolly Rancher guy? Um, I can eat them. I have, Ooh. you know, so you have your uh, you have your war stories of uh, of, of beer, right? <laughs> yeah, I've got my war stories and my uh, my trauma with grape soda. Uh, so we grew up quite poor, yeah. Uh, as I've talked about on this show plenty of times, and the only reason we really ever had food or clothing of any kind after my parents got divorced. Um, it was realistically because of my grandfather, but my grandfather was a very cheap man. So even though I'm very thankful that we got food and had something to eat every day, um, he would buy us stuff from Save a Lot, which is you know I don't even know if y'all have a Save a Lot uh, around there, but it's very cheap. Um, yeah. It's like cheaper than Great Value. That's basically all you need to know. Like a so, dollar store equivalent. Cheaper than that in many ways. Actually, cheaper All than that right. just in general. So yeah, uh, like their their knockoff Mountain Dew is called <laughs> Mountain Holler. <laughs> <laughs> I want a shirt with that on it. And it had a it had a sun rising over the mountain, but with like screaming. <laughs> it was really interesting. <laughs> you could probably look up the the thing. Uh, the the knockoff brand of Kool Aid from them was called Flavor Aid. And I think Flavor Aid was sold at other discount, you know, grocery stores. Um, but it was a straw instead of the Kool Aid Man. It was like a straw with stripes on him. Dude, this is the dopest can I've ever seen in my life. Is it the Mountain Holler one? Yeah, this is so sick. Radical Citrus Thirst Blaster. Is it the one with the sunglasses? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I drank a whole lot of that, but for a while, because my grandpa would just—I think it's where a lot of my. Um, obsessive is probably the wrong word, but I get really stuck on one thing and that's just what I do. And I think I get that from my grandpa. So he would go save a lot and he would buy us food every day. So growing up the average summer day for damn sure when we didn't have school. So school's lunch was actually a great break from the monotony of my other day-to-day living. He would bring us either. We'd come to his house in where I live now or when we lived out in the country, he would come to us and bring us stuff while we were staying at home. And almost every day he'd come with a bag of cocoa pebbles, a gallon of milk, uh, two boxes of knockoff velvet, like Velveeta shells and cheese. Yeah. And a 12 pack of grape soda. Oh no. And so for years of my life, for years of my life, all we would I, I would drink grape soda for pretty much like the entirety of of the year. And when my mom lost her job a, a few, like a year or so later, he just started buying all of our food for about a year. And so I have a <clears> large <throat> chunk of my life where I had to drink that. Cause that's what we had that in water. Yeah. And, um, if I, there's a few foods in my life now by way of thankfully crawling out of that, even though I'm glad we survived and I can only thank him and those foods for that. If I drink or smell grape soda, instant gag if wow. i drink see if i or not drink but if i see smell or even try to eat vienna sausages no way ain't happening <laughs> ain't happening so you can relate to like when people are like i cannot drink tequila after that night 94 it's not 100 again <laughs> yeah i can't gotcha. i can't drink grape soda after that one day in fucking 
June of 2009 when I <laughs> <laughs> it's like that once I got my own job and didn't have to do that crap anymore when I started my own money I was like we're buying real Mountain Dew and we're gonna buy a Voltage and <laughs> typhoon and flavors that no, don't even exist anymore. You know, we're um, talking about stuff from our childhood with the food. Do you remember? It was a citrus powder, and it was a drink, and it was monkeys. Tang, tang. There it is. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember. Yeah, it. I never could afford it, but I remember the I remember the commercials. Oh, I never drank it once, but <laughs> I did like tang. tang. It was like an orangutan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it still exists, but there's no more monkeys. Huh. <laughs> no more monkeys, damn. All right, I'm trying to think of if I have any food conference, like food things in general. So since we last talked about food, realistically, I have done a lot of work to try and make myself a less picky eater because I guess by means of growing up with the same food, you form habits. And that means that I was very quick to just, if I didn't eat it, I didn't like it. So I've been working on that. So I eat salads more often than I used to. This year, I've started getting to where I eat uh, sushi, which has never been a thing for me up until the recent year. Um, A little bit more open to Japanese and Chinese cuisine than I was in the past. So I've not been necessarily doing any weird mix-ups. Chris, did I ever tell you about my uh, microwave burrito one? That's, I think, the one that he's referencing. (laughs) No, you never told me this. Okay, so for any new listeners, uh, <laughs> and Chris, for your your fresh ears, they have these, um, I can't remember the brand right now, but they sell them still at Walmart. It's like L something. And they're microwavable burritos that are incredibly cheap. <laughs> and, uh, I get those and get the beef and bean burritos or the beef and bean chimichangas and microwave them. And take a piece of American cheese. Of course, growing up, it was always off-brand singles. And you microwave them. And then about 15 seconds before they're done, you slap that piece of cheese on there and let it melt onto it. Then you get a bottle of ketchup. And you just put ketchup over the top like a little drizzle. And then you just bite it. You know, just cut into it and eat it. And uh, that's I haven't done it in years now. But every now and then it crosses my mind and I'm like, that actually sounds good. I don't know how that one, I ate a lot of that. I don't know how that one hasn't hit the Vienna sausage grape soda mark, but it hasn't. Here's the other thing though. I've got almost every single one of my friends growing up, not only to try it, but to do it on their own time. I hit them up and they're like, what you, what you doing, man? And be like, oh, I'm cooking a burrito. I'm like, oh yeah. They're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> throwing that cheese and ketchup on there. And it used to blow my mind because I'm like, I thought that, that was going to be that thing where people would be like, absolutely not. But it was, it's not the craziest thing in the world. No, but it's, it's not. I will end this on, on one combination I had recently that I thought was weird. Um, I was out of bacon and I had just done an event at work where I brought home a bunch of pulled pork. So I had scrambled eggs with pulled pork, and it was phenomenal, actually. For any of you that exist in a world where you've not had your tongue embraced by the warm hold, the sweet embrace of chicken and waffles. Oh, good God. And I mean real chicken and waffles. I'm not talking like you go down to Slim Chickens and get their fucking chicken tenders just piled up on a shitty waffle. Go to a real place, like a brunch place or something like that. We mm-hmm. got a place in town called Verona, and their chicken and waffles are delicious. They come with very thick Belgian waffle, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they they are chicken tenders, but they're very very nicely breaded, and they have strawberry chunks, whipped cream, uh, syrup, of course, maple syrup, and then the the little coup de gras is this like in house habanero bacon sauce. That sounds pretty solid. And it is incredible. If you get a bite where you have all the elements stacked up, you know, like a little bit of waffle, a little piece of, of strawberry with a little whipped cream dipped in a little bit of syrup, and then you just drizzle a hair of that habanero sauce on there, it's it's like eating heaven. It's so good. That's so like close my to go-to. one of the dessert specials I want to do. So, Whew. Oh, well, oh, can you not tell us? Is this company secrets? No, I don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> I want to do a, an ice cream where it's in a waffle sundae. And then it's chicken tenders. It's like one chicken tender in the bottom, two scoops of ice cream, two chicken tenders on top, little little bourbon uh, bourbon maple syrup. Oh, yeah. Maybe oh, yeah. a little bacon grease in there. Give it that salty bacon flavor. I'll sounds tell you what, gr- Chris. Sounds weird, but it's good. That sounds amazing. If you all do that, I'll come and visit you, and I'll try one of those. Okay. And then if you ever come back down here, uh, we'll do Sunday brunch at Verona. And uh, I'll let you try that chicken and waffle. And then uh, just to be courteous, I'll get there also insanely delicious. uh, They have French toast. Uh Um, That is incredible. And uh, I'll let you try a little bit of that too. I'm into it. Man, food is so good. This episode of Plate Squared has been really fun. It's actually not a bad episode, not a bad title for a cooking podcast. Not going to lie. Not a a bad one, you know? The square Not a bad one at all. There you go. Easy. Have you had a meal that's grown on you with age? Just to kind of look at that secondary part of the question. Uh, rice. Like by itself? Like fried just rice? rice. Or just I used to, rice? as a kid, weird, because I am Puerto Rican, but I used to just hate rice. I couldn't eat it. And then now I, I'm a big rice guy. Rice is good. I think, uh, and it's clearly not a combination, but... I was really, I was one of those kids that growing up when you went to a Mexican restaurant, I would always like get the Mexican cheeseburger, like mm. Tex-Mex cheeseburger. And it's like a <laughs> shitty patty with like shredded cheese melted to, in place of the like American cheese and then like French fries. And it was fine. But whenever I was uh, 16 and started working, my first job was at a, a Tex-Mex restaurant here in town called La Coretta. And I really started eating a lot more of that type of food. And I think as I've gotten older, I love chips and salsa more and more with every year, it feels like. I mean, it's a perfect And every year dish. I find a new salsa that is amazing and just throwing it out there. This is shout out to Saul because he's the one that found it and he let I everyone this. know. The Mateo salsa is incredible. It's in a shitty, <laughs> it's in a shitty jar with like an orange label and some dancing peppers that look like what do they call those little PNG clip art things from like Microsoft <laughs> PowerPoint 2003? And it's Mateo's salsa, and every single one of the flavors is good. They have mild, very hot, hot, medium. All of them taste very different from each other, and they're very delicious. Um, my, my favorite thing lately has been to get uh, one of our local Mexican places. It's like half the reason me and my wife even go eat there is they have this really great white queso with pico in it. And we'll order that, and then they bring out their salsa. And I don't love their salsa on its own, but I'll take their white queso and go you know, and put about, you know, make the bowl about half and half in my little salsa bowl, mix it together with the chip. And it's like the the salsa being cold because it's stored in a freezer, you know, 
and then the queso being warm, it kind of froths the queso up and gives it a really interesting texture. And it kind of blends together, and that's delicious. I will just smack down some chips with that on there. That does sound very good. Like I, I should probably make that a meal in and of itself. Just go <laughs> there, get a drink, and that. But chips and salsa are free at most Tex-Mex places. So, very fair. Very fair. Uh, one more question before we get into the sexy zone. <laughs> Sweet Grand Turismo Jones is back with one more question. He says, what's a game you are bummed is not for you? For example, my game is Call of Duty, specifically the DMZ. I like the feel, gameplay loop, customization, etc. I'm just so bad I get wrecked by other operators making it a complete waste of time. So it's not for me. If it was a PvE co-op, I'd be all over it. So... Chris, do you have a game that you see people playing? You're like, I feel like that should be me, but it's just not clicking. Um, no, I think I don't have a ton of these. Mine's more just, I wish I could get more into JRPGs. I'm sure you've seen us as we've talked about games for a long time. I keep trying. Like you do. I, I earnestly try. I, I respect that. I do respect that. <laughs> and I can't get into them. So what do you I've think it is? is Persona 5. You. I don't I don't know because I like them all. Like every single one I've played I've liked, but I just can't finish them. It's like So do you think it's the length? Because you know, one of the common points between them is that they tend to be quite long. It could is be it that the they're length. not able to hold your attention at that length and the only one that has is Persona five because probably of, I ostensibly the quality of its story. That and the pandemic for sure are the two reasons that the pandemic are probably certainly the biggest reason. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. got to sit on my couch for two weeks and only do that. So that's all I was allowed <laughs> to do. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it would probably be that. Uh, that's the biggest thing for me. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I was bummed I didn't like were Red Dead 2 and Outer Worlds. And I think I've come around on those pretty hard. So Just wait until you come around on Arkham City, man. Just wait. I don't dislike Arkham City. It's just not better than, <laughs> it's just not better than Asylum. I know. I know <laughs> your thought process, but you wait and see. I will. You it's the next see. game I'm going to play. Maybe Chia the next and, game then, play. and then Arkham City. But. Yeah, a break would probably not be a bad idea. Though, to be fair, the upside to City and the difference between going from Asylum to City to City tonight is that Asylum's more closed-off gameplay loop. When you go yeah. to City, the expansiveness really helps in playing them back-to-back. But oh, going from it. City directly into the night, night is a little more rough because it's like I just played a big, massive, sprawling world and I'm doing that again. And the way you interact with the world is pretty similar, you know, in a so great you're way. Saying great it's, games. You're saying it's Asylum, then City, then Chia, then Arkham Knight. <laughs> That's sure. what you're saying to me. Yeah, sure. There you go. All right, cool. Yeah, do Chia between it and Knight. Give you a little break. Even though, if I'm not mistaken, Chia is kind of like open world. It is. It's probably the same. It's the same type of game. Probably not the right type of game. Maybe you need to play... I don't even know. (laughs) know Arkham Asylum, Arkham City, Resident Evil 4, Arkham Knight, Chia. That might actually be the right call. Resident Evil is probably different enough. We'll do it. Though tonally, it's it's pretty brooding and dark and like Batman. So you're not getting a tonal disconnect, but you're at least getting a gameplay style disconnect. Yeah, but Resident Evil 4 is brooding and stuff in the way that it's funny. Where Arkham Knight is just... The Arkham games are just kind of depressingly brooding. (laughs) 
Well, apparently I've seen some of the reviews say that this game is a lot more daring to be dark than the right. actual original was. So I'm curious to see what that what they mean by that. Yeah. Like, does the game take itself more seriously? And I'm a little worried that if it does, then those sections of um, those sections of moving through all these crazy, like, uh, you know what I mean, moving through rail carts and doing these somewhat goofy parts of the game may not land the same way. But well, we'll see. For your Metacritic draft, it did very well. So I think we'll be. <laughs> I did. think it'll be okay. It did very well for my Metacritic draft. I needed that. I needed that win. Destiny 2 Lightfall really fucked me over. I'm pretty upset yeah. that I lost that one. Yeah, I was so was, confident that was a bold-ass pick that was going to play well for me, watch, but it did not. The final shape is going to be the one that's big. <laughs> you just <laughs> chose the wrong one. Witch Queen, great. That tends to be the Destiny story, right? It's one great other. expansion. One, yeah. 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 That's kind of how it works. Um you know, I think for me it's kind of the same, but instead of it being a specific one game, I think recently I've learned that some of these survival games that I thought weren't for me are for me uh, with Conan and um, The Forest. So that's good. I'm glad that I took that dive and kind of fell in love. Um, but I think... I don't know how to describe this. I guess maybe it's age and the responsibilities of being an adult. But it, there was a point in my life where I adored MMOs. And I adored playing them in the way you're supposed to play an MMO with like a, a community and like a social fashion. And I was never doing it like on a super large scale, but I would normally meet a handful of people that I didn't know in real life and I would just play the game with them and I'd talk to them on there and befriend them on there. And it's like, I can't even get excited about that now. It's like when I play RuneScape, I play it like a single player game. I don't do anything with anyone. I just go through and do quests and do my thing and pretend that the other people are just basically glorified NPCs. Uh, <laughs> it, that's more or less how I operate. So I think there's a little bit of me that feels like I do wish that I had that excitement for games like Final Fantasy 14 online. And it was funny. I was probably enjoying Final Fantasy 14 online the most whenever I was just pretending it wasn't a multiplayer game. And every time that it reminded me that it was, it was like, this feels like it's trying to pull me in. And that's kind of what destiny is, right? Like I feel like I get so burnt out on destiny because of the social aspect of it. And sometimes, like, I just want to get off work and come home and play a game without worrying about talking to 10 people to do a raid, you know? I do know. Like, I don't think I've ever been as... Okay, I have, actually, recently, because of PSVR. I've really understated... I've under-anticipated how physical VR games are. I have been so tired since PSVR 2 has come out because... (laughs) I get home and then I play like three hours once everything's gone. Like my, once my kids are asleep and everything, I'll spend from like nine to twelve playing VR games. And a, it's it's making me stay up even later. I'm not going to bed till like twelve thirty or one most nights, and I'm standing up and shooting bows and arrows or other people. And I have woefully misprepared myself for how physically demanding that is. I have been so tired lately as part of why I'm taking a break from VR. It's like, I need to decompress from that. Uh, But other than that, when we were playing destiny Two, hardcore grinding with me, you and Sean, uh, that was exhausting. Yes, it was. And you had it way worse than I did, but it was still exhausting. I, I felt like I slept like shit and I was staying up so late to try and you know make sure I got that. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible grind. Destiny sucks. 
I, I definitely don't think going for the platinum the way that I had to was the right way because no. I used to think I'll probably come back for the final shape. And now I don't know. It's like I, I'm back and forth in my head. of like, can I make myself play that again? Or will I just get hit with that PTSD? <laughs> I'm trying to get the platinum. I know this sounds ridiculous, but the idea of playing that game anymore makes me nauseous. <laughs> I do understand. There are games that I'm like, I feel like I should want to play this and I just don't. I, man, my RuneScape thing, I have not wanted to play RuneScape in months. Yeah, I got on to do the... Tw- uh, the 10th anniversary event for OSRS mm-hmm. and um, I got it done and immediately logged off and I was like, yeah, I'm not really that worried. I, was, yeah. I don't feel like playing. Sean still tries to get me to play destiny and he'll like text me about the story and all this stuff going on and I'm his friend. So like I let him talk about it. It's the thing he loves and I'm his friend. He's ha- happy to talk about it. But every time he's like, Oh, there's, there's no grind anymore. You should get in I'm like dog. I would rather kill myself. Like I genuinely would rather jump off a bridge. Like, I'm not playing Destiny 2 anymore. I'm just not doing it. It's like a deep-seated feeling that, like, the thought of having to hit download on Destiny 2 again. (laughs) And it's a great game. I'm I'm not doing it again. No more. Yeah. I'm not going to go talk to Zer. When you were talking about Exoprimal... Uh, and talking about that weird mode, I was like, it kind of sounds like Gambit, where it's like you are it's technically exactly going Gambit, against someone actually. else. And Gambit is awesome. Gambit is Gambit easily rocks. one of my favorite parts of, of Destiny That's how you too. know we're not hardcore Destiny guys, because hardcore Destiny guys hate Gambit. I love <laughs> fucking like, Gambit. I love I've loved Gambit. it since the first time. I, yeah. Gambit, back when it was even harder, oh. yeah. it's the best <laughs> It was even better, but it was it was great, yeah. They've made a lot of changes to Gambit, but I still think it's an excellent idea for a game mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, Chris. Yes. With that in mind, I think it's time that we go into the Velvet Corner. Oh. Velvet Corner. <laughs> there you are. That was really Velvet solid. Thunder has continued to provide us with such crazy, ridiculous, off-the-wall questions that Chris has suggested that we make a dedicated sp- a spot for it. As long as he continues to supply the questions, the button for the Velvet Corner song will stay in this podcast app. Yeah. And we will hit it every time. And I threw that together specifically for you. I wanted you to know that. Chris, as he was waiting for us to record, heard me slide over to my mic real quick in my recording program and go, Velvet's Corner. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a great time doing it, and I would do it again. That was Um, the first time I heard the jingle, too. I refused to listen to it. And then Brett tried to play it like 18 times before the show started. I didn't mean to. (laughs) I was like, stop it. I was trying to set the volume. Well, did did it live up to your expectations, Chris? Yeah, it was pretty good. I was disappointed there was no ka-chow. I almost did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I may I may add that in. We'll see. It's I may an even, evolving corner of the building. Yeah, I may even sample in the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> 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 and then a random girl moan. Oh. <laughs> I think yeah, the my, Velvet... My, my pitch to Velvet was, would it be cool if I just gave you like porno slash stripper music and then mm-hmm. just did like a low belting voice over it. And I feel like I really came in some lightning bolts. I mean, Do it's it one more there. time. Play it one more time. All right, you, you ready here? Let's we'll get it, it to you one more time. Show me one more time. Velvet's Corner. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty All solid. Right. There we go. I'll take it. Well, he comes with two questions because he got um, he got told it was too easy. Yeah, it was too easy. By, by you. 
So we'll give the first one. <clears throat> How many Switch cartridges do you think you could fit in your mouth? Or as Aztec King, one of our patrons said, a.k.a. what that mouth do? <laughs> uh, 17 and a half. 17 and a half. You, you yeah. couldn't fit the whole, the whole 18th one in there? No, it's like sticking out like a tongue. So here, what's, what's the half? Is it like half like ha- hamburger, hot dog, or like piece of paper? Like, are you taking a piece of paper and somehow splitting it into two? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, I was thinking the front like, and I the back. S- I stuck the switch card in there, and it's just some of it's hanging out the front because it doesn't all fit. Mm. Okay. Well, I've got a small mouth hole. Oh, okay. The inside of my mouth is quite large. Oh. Uh, I'm not proud of this, and mm. I am proud of this. You practiced? You checked? Uh, well, no. One point in time, like six or seven years ago, I think it was before my daughter was born, <laughs> we were out eating Texas Roadhouse uh, with my my friend and his wife, and we were making a joke, and <clears throat> I can't remember if it was my wife or what, but someone was like, if you can eat that whole potato in one go, I'll give you a blowjob tonight. And so I took the entire baked potato and shoved the entire thing in my mouth in one go. Congratulations. Um, Good. And it was incredible. And uh, here, here's the extra part, right? This is the the extra layer of that. Part of the reason that even came up is because Texas Roadhouse specifically, they put the salt crystals, the big thick ones on the outside mm. and do butter and it bakes it on there and it's delicious. So it's the only place that when I get a baked potato, I eat the baked potato like a hot dog. So I just pick it up and I literally <laughs> bite the entire potato. And on multiple occasions, while I'm doing it, I've had people look at me like, whoa, what the <laughs> hell? One point in time, one of the managers for the business walked by and saw me doing it. And he's like, hell yeah, dude. <laughs> and I didn't see him again for like a year. And he came out. He was like, potato guy. And I was like, that's me. You got me. He that's, remembered you for your abnormal it. potato habit. That's so really that was good. kind of what it is. I was going to eat the potato anyway. And it was going towards my mouth. And it was like, if you can eat it all in one blow or one job. So it was, one it was fun. <laughs> one job. You did one blow. One no, blow. one job. <laughs> that's exactly right. One blow equals one job. <laughs> Hell fucking yeah, it does. One like equals one prayer, Chris. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to go with I'm, I'm going to be bold, and I'm going to say 21 and three quarters. Okay. All right, yeah. I can see it. I mean, I could see myself getting higher than 17 and a half. Uh, it's just the most comfortable I am is with 17 and mm. a half. Yeah. Because keep in mind, you got to withstand that awful taste, too. Yeah, you got to understand the awful taste. But then the other question is, at what point does it start to hit your gag reflex? It don't be hitting <laughs> the gag reflex, boy. <laughs> what gag reflex? Ain't got one of them. <clears throat> what gag reflex? <laughs> oh, man. All right. So the the actual Velvet's Corner, once he decided to accept your challenge, is one of the most complicated I have ever seen. So if you're ready, Chris, here we are. If you had to plan a bachelor party for the male protagonist of the hardest game you've ever platinumed, who would it be? Who would they be marrying? Where would you arrange to go? And who would you invite to the party? Okay, that is a harder one. 
Hardest game to platinum is such a... Re- that's what I was talking about with uh, Bailey Robertson is that point of where it's like... What's that mean? Is it like the most grind-inducing mm. one? Is it the one that was the biggest skill challenge, but it didn't take forever? So I'm going to go with a relatively easy answer. My boy Crash. We go back to back whenever I was, you know, yay tall. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. he is he's he's finally shacking up, meeting up with Tana after he got separated from her and finally re you know rejoined her and and crash four. Uh he, he's getting with her, he's marrying her. We're going all the way to the Wampa Islands, going back to where he started. The They're gonna Humpa have a nice Islands little like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when they consummate. Okay, calm down. We're getting <laughs> oh, there. We're sorry. getting there. Uh, yeah, and they're going to have uh, Aku or <laughs> Uka Uka, Aku Aku. Um, going to have my boy do his thing where he's going to be like the, uh, I guess, the officiator if, <laughs> for the wedding. Um, it's going to be a good time, you know, and that's where they're going to go. Invite him to the party. I like to think that Crash is like a uh, forgive and forget guy. So I think what he's going to do is get all of his, you know, former rivals, and he's going to kind of do the Sly Cooper thing, where even though Dimitri was a bad guy, in the next game he's helping you out. You know, your boys, your boys got you back. He's helping you. So we're going to have Ripper Rue come and join. He's going to be jumping around like a crazy ass. We're going to have uh, uh, what's his name, Papu Papu, <laughs> from the first game. I'm trying to remember if that's actually yeah, Papu Papu. Um, the first boss in the original Crash Bandicoot game. We have Dingo Dial, uh, Uka Uka. Going to have everybody. Neo Cortex clearly going to be there. They've had a lot of times together. Whether or not we're talking about the the new, I guess, return to Crash Bandicoot 3, where none of the other stuff happened. They just Dragon Ball Supered it. Oh, Crash Twin Sanity was a dream <laughs> that Crash had. Um, so that's where I go. That's my, that's, and because the reason I throw that out there is that Crash Bandicoot 1, in the insane trilogy has got some insane relic time trials for a couple of levels. The frozen bridge, I can't remember, you know, the ice bridge or whatever. There's a few of them that are insane and they're so hard. And I was yelling and screaming and uh, broke a few chairs of my arm. I I did actually beat the shit out of the (laughs) the arm on my chair. That's over here by my computer. Uh That is now electrical taped on because it broke off. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've learned to control my anger a lot more since then, which is the way to go. Congrats. So, Chris, I've, I've given you time. Where are we at here? The hardest Who's part Commander was, Shepard marrying? <laughs> the hardest part was determining which game I decided was <laughs> going to be my hardest, right? I could go with Destiny 2. I could go with Fallout New Vegas because of how difficult actually playing that game was. But I've mm. decided to go with a game that was a struggle to platinum and it was a struggle to platinum because it was a piece of dog shit so why'd you platinum it (laughs) so i'm going with the callisto protocol oh which means um jacob is getting married to him is it to the two-headed dude that you fight eight times no he's getting married to my right thumbstick and I'm going to take. I thought maybe the ending of the game, you know, when it does that, I don't want to spoil the game, but that's what it is. (laughs) It's right before his wedding. He's like, you hear that voice and you're like, oh no, but it turns out he's proposing. Okay. I like that. Um, I think. And Jacob couldn't dodge the proposal. Nice. 
Um, I think they would. I, in reality, I think I would have him marrying probably the um, Sam Whitmer character. <laughs> I think him and him and the general. That's who I was the, talking about. So that works. Yeah. 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 I think him and her, him and him would get married. They would get married together. Um, I think I would arrange to go anywhere that's not a prison. I think that's a very easy setup for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who I would invite to the party. Uh, he doesn't have very many friends, which made this very easy. But I would be sure to weekend at Bernie's, the burned corpse of his friend from the beginning of the game. <laughs> <laughs> one that that he has ptsd flashbacks on and then the yes. game never really does anything with yep. yeah so it'd be like him like yeah. the warden maybe that doctor at the end but the, the warden wouldn't actually be there it'd just be his like uh his little hologram that he keeps doing throughout the yeah game. of course congratulations jacob right Exactly. Go back to your cell. Um, the guy. That you know, I guess you, we could throw out there that speaking of all this destiny, talking everything. R.I.P. Uh, Lance Reddick. Yes. No more Zavala. No more Sil- Asylums. Um, for all the people that never got around to it, go play Quantum Break. <laughs> yes. Continue. Um, I don't know. I think that's it for me. Um, I was going to go Sekiro, but they don't really tell you much about that character. So I'm going with Callisto Protocol because it was the hardest game I've ever had to platinum. Yeah, I still can't believe you did it. My hope is that if I do go back to platinum it, it's after a number of updates have made it much better. But the the real problem I see is that I don't think that most of my complaints... I could see myself getting through the game once with its gameplay flaws that I have, right? Um, Yeah. But I don't think the story is engaging enough to do again. No. Even if you try and lightly improve the gameplay, um, so even if you removed a lot of the gameplay flaws uh, or at least lessened them considerably, the story is not compelling enough to go through again. Which I think is the biggest—it's uh, the biggest thing where I felt like the game was going to. My expectations is that it was going to be replayable in the way that I think Dead Space One and Two are, uh, and I don't find that game replayable <laughs> at all uh, because there's not really much to pull you. The gameplay is not that engaging. And even if it's good enough to get through once, it's like, okay, this is a good time. I had a a solid time out of the game. Bam, done. Going for platinum. Crazy, man. (laughs) So I did it all in one playthrough, baby. I'm proud of you. Smartest decision I've ever made. (laughs) Probably the right move. Um, I still don't know how you play games following a god. It just seems... Like just trying to follow a guide to get the remaining fish and uh, a short hike and find the last golden feather that I couldn't figure out how to do. I was like, how do you play games like this? <laughs> it seems so annoying. It's not that annoying. I had to do man. the same thing in, uh, in Call of the Mountain. I had like two beacons I couldn't find. These little things that you shoot that are collectibles. Mm-hmm. And I could not find them. So I had to go to a guide. And it's even worse in VR where you've got to be constantly sliding the thing off your face and looking at your phone and then going back in. Yeah, it was, I don't it, know it was how awful. you do it in VR. <clears throat> but uh, if, if it makes you happy, I did all of Arkham Asylum's Riddle challenges without a guide. Just, just the secret maps. I did that with Arkham Knight without any guide. Arkham Knight, really, you don't need a guide. Though no. that, that's actually one of the ones I brought up. Arkham Knights, the little the combo trophy that you've got to get is stupid. It is oh, so hard. I it think those so, are easy. 
go see the one I'm talking about. It is hard. It is the one trophy that most people don't have who have trophies. Is it the one where you have to use all his combat and all his combat moves you have in to one use, combo? Yep. Oh, Without yeah, breaking a, at all. It's incredibly complicated. One. Oh, I'm sure. I know it is, but I think I might I think I'll be okay. I the one thing I'm really good at in those games is the combos. I'm good at combos, but not stringing every single move together without repeating it a single time. Oh, and not I didn't breaking know you couldn't combo. repeat it. That's the whole difference. As, as, as far as I know, I don't think you can. Either way, on this note, it was very hard. It took me a long time to get oh, it. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Well, that closes out. <laughs> I promise next time we won't do it so much. I just like seeing Chris yeah, just lose control over here. But that wraps up this episode. That was our last question. Guys, next week is, of course, episode 300 for us. And as you may know, if you've been listening for a long time, Chris and I are still trying to find ways to make things work with our own schedules. So what I'm trying to figure out right now is uh, if Saul's schedule is going to line up because back whenever he first you know decided to leave the show, he talked about wanting to come back for episode three hundred, and it, depending on how long we go and con- you know continuity, coming back for milestone episodes. So I've reached out to him, and we're going to see if we can find a way to make all three of our schedules work to make episode three hundred work. Whether or not Saul will be able to be there the entire time, or just have a segment. I'll find out. I would like to say that for episode 300, we were doing something so much more grand, but I think given the schedule that we have, I'm going to try as I'm editing, coming up with some fun stuff for us to do. And it'll be a less typical episode. Probably going to ask for a lot more fan interaction. See if you guys can write in, ask us questions, talk about what we've done on the show. Uh, Maybe get you guys to tell us some of the favorite conversations and topics we've covered throughout all the years. Uh, Maybe with Saul in here, that'd be cool. But If you have any ideas for things that you'd like to see for 300 that you think we might be able to work in, considering that we have space between us and time against us, as far as Chris and I are concerned, we're open to any ideas. Um, Unfortunately, changing with the pandemic and adding Chris to the show, it really does make doing special episodes so much different than what they were before. I used to, you know, it's, it's live streaming and have everything together. And unfortunately shy of trying to get Chris down here and very short notice, uh, and a job where he has to put notice in and I had to put notice in, I just don't think it was going to work. So hopefully for one of our upcoming episodes that, you know, we can do something a little bit bigger, get Chris to come down here or me go up to Chris, something. Yeah. <laughs> But we appreciate everyone who is who has listened uh, for 300 episodes, if you have, or who's just joined in randomly and have continued to listen until episode 300. But with that in mind, I think this is uh, wrapping this this baby up, man. So, Chris, you know, I normally give the rigmarole at the end, but you know, I think I would like to pass the baton to you today. <clears throat> oh God, what does that mean? I, I feel I feel ready to you, <laughs> ready to you. I feel ready that you can do this. I believe in you. Oh, okay. Do you know what a rigmarole is? Yeah. Do you, you know where the word rigmarole came from? No. I looked it up one day and I don't remember anymore. It's because I'm riggedy, riggedy, riggedy rolling out of the show by talking about you can find finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nartech where you can join our Discord and join our community of wonderful people in the description below. You can find that. I think you can find it on Patreon, too. You can probably find it on our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash triangle squared. If you do enjoy the show, please go to any subscription service that does allow you to review. Give us a nice five-star review. Even if you hate the show, give it a five-star review and just tell us why you hate it. 
Yeah, go to the go to the Michelin food thing and yeah. just give us a five star restaurant review. Could you imagine if I got my first Michelin star because of my fucking podcast? <laughs> That'd be amazing, actually. That'd be I really am good. technically a Michelin star chef. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. no, um, yeah. So like and review, subscribe on YouTube, go to Patreon, like and subscribe, comment, share, share the video with friends, all that yeah. sexy stuff. Everything, everything that we want you to do. Yeah, we want you to do yeah. it, so do it. That's basically the moral of the story. Come here. So come here. I'm gonna give you a little, little little smooch on the forehead. That's how we end the show. With a little <laughs> little kissy kiss. All right, guys. Play on gamers. <laughs> yeah. Everybody remember, keep playing. Keep, keep playing, playing gamers. <laughs> <laughs> um just so everyone can know, the origins of rigmarole came from uh, an altered Kentish colloquial survival of Ragman Roll, which was a long list roster or catalog. The origins are Middle English Rage Man, document recording, document, uh, recording accusations or offenses, also an accuser. So basically, long you know, process, they took Ragman Roll and called it Rigamarole. Okay. Words are interesting. Yeah. Why don't you Ragman Roll onto Patreon? That's exactly what I was going to do, Chris. Shout out to our patrons, Spencer, Brandon Edwards, Alex, Barry Rogers, Stingray X. It's a sin to win, a.k.a. Sean, Aztec King, Lechion69, The Lord Corgi, Salvador Garcia, Hamadegger, Bailey Robertson, Mark Schutz, Cypher Primus, Kyle Grimm, Rude Days 93, Kevin Bacon Bits, Christopher, Danny Villiobos, Jehudi MD, No Fate, Josh Ayers, Derek Porter, Donovan Williams, Matthew Green, and Sean Santaru. Thanks to each and every one of you. We'll see you next week.